Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. The 3-2 in the gap at right center. That'll score a run. Cut off by Bader. Quickly into the infield, and it's 2-0 Pittsburgh. Have him throw as many pitches as he can. You want him to build up the intensity and maybe learn from him. We're seeing a lot of arm side misses from Jack. I think we're seeing that arm start to drop on him a little bit. Certainly laboring through, you know, one-plus innings now. Flaherty has fallen behind here at 3-1. Smith... Jimba and he draws a walk in his second major league start. You can see just visibly the frustration right now with Jack Flaherty and then the question becomes if you're Ali how long do you stick with Flaherty in this game if this continues? Yeah I, I think the hook will be pretty quick. You want to make sure you're taking care of him first and foremost in this game. Alongside Alex Ferrario and the return of the illustrious Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Not what you were looking for last night. As Tanner returns to St. Louis, Jack Flaherty returns to the mound. And I think this is officially a TKO. It's meant to be perfect. I, oh. think, I think this is on Tanner, actually. I did get a text the moment Jack Flaherty threw that first pitch and it all went south that T-Bone was in St. Louis. Yeah, it's on him, really. I, I think that we That's can fair. blame Tanner Hendrickson for the struggles last night of Jack Flaherty. T-Bone, don't feel bad because BK had an entire week of BKOing a no-hitter. You oh, BKO'd yeah. a hockey game. I saw that in the fifth inning and knew um, it was over. Oh, no, you didn't see it in the fifth inning. You missed it where he literally told myself and Grant, look at the scoreboard, and while he said that, the no-hitter was broken up. Yeah, that that wow. happened in the studio while we were on the air. That, wow. that was tough. Like, that, as it came out of his sitch. mouth, the hit hit the ground. Yeah, not not good. Um, Jack Flaherty went three innings last night. Honestly, impressive that he was able to get through three because I didn't think that he was going to be able to give you another inning after that second. It went awry for him rather quickly. Got a strikeout to open things up. That was encouraging. And then triple walk ground out on what was a tough play by Donovan. Thought there could have been two there. A single then gets out of the inning with the strikeout. He was throwing. He was overthrowing early on. He was getting up to about 95-ish in terms of the velocity. Then he comes back out for what was a really weird second inning. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. You get the walk to start things off. And then there's the bunt that goes down as an error on Jack Flaherty. The bunt that goes down as an error on Yadier Molina. 
get the double play after that and things just it never really seemed to settle in for Jack. He was frustrated and that's where we ended up. Alex, what were your impressions last night? As we watched Jack Flaherty really struggle to get through three. It was obvious he was frustrated. And I think I think the outcome of his outing really just spiraled out of control once that first misplay took place in the first inning. And then the frustration set in. And I thought Danny Mack and BT made it perfect or said it perfect on the broadcast. Like those errors that you saw in the game, I think that's a repercussion of a long day prior with doubleheader in that heat and guys just might with a little fatigue and just poor poor play defensively but Jack Flaherty was just spiraling out of control and you just saw the frustration set in he was just he was missing the placement the pitches weren't the same but I'm not sitting here panicked that Jack Flaherty is awful and forgot how to pitch and is now not going to be able to stay healthy for the team I actually thought that was the outing not the way you wanted it but hey, I mean, he gave you three innings. He gave you the 60-ish pitches that they originally said it was going to do. And this is why you did this. You wanted him to experience the major league level rather than just go out there and throw 75 pitches against AAA, which he's already dominated against AAA once, and he did it against AA. The, the hope was for him to see major league level pitching. It didn't go the way he wanted. The frustration set in. But I still think this was the way that they were hoping it went about with Jack Flaherty. Yeah, I, I'm not going to sit here and panic over Jack Flaherty in his first start. I kind of expected something along those lines. Maybe he'd have a bit more command, but I didn't know really what to anticipate in that game. I figured he was going to have some nerves making his first start at Bush since like August of 2021. So I, I have no major concerns leaving that start. It's good to hear that he's healthy. I, I My concern was, okay, is he not feeling right? He brought down the velocity. It wasn't that. He said he was just feeling uh, anxious going into that game. So... That's the number one sign for me. He feels healthy. He feels fine. And honestly, he can build off of that third inning. I know he wasn't thrown hard, but he got three straight. I think it was three straight ground ball outs, if I remember correctly. So that third inning is the one to build off of. I, I, I had no anticipation of him being out there throwing four or five shutout innings in his limited 60 pitches in his first start. The one that I'll really be monitoring is his second start. How's he looking the second start? Now he's okay. He went through that start with the first dealing with the anxiousness of getting his start back, coming back from the IL, not facing triple A, double A hitters. The next start is the one that will be the key for me. Honestly, last night, don't read too much into it. It was just him feeling anxious getting his first start since 2021. And that's what I think led to some of those issues we saw. Well, let's hear from Jack. So he had what was a a clearly frustrated post-game press conference. He was available late last night with the media. He talked about his adrenaline level. Tiener kind of mentioned this. He was clearly anxious and almost overly amped to get that thing going. That's about as juiced up as I've been, honestly. Like, I had to catch my breath and try to slow down there. Um, coming out, I don't know why, I don't know how or, or what. Um, usually I keep that under under wraps pretty well, but it was one of those I had to, you know, kind of gather myself. And you could see that while he was out there on the mound. He came out throwing about 95, which is kind of what you expect out of him. His velocity is typically around that 94-ish range. But then it dipped. It was down to like 89, 90, 91 by the third inning. There were some questions of, okay, is this him trying to reel it in? He's trying to, to to throttle it back, or is there something more significant here? Here's what Jack Flaherty said about the velocity dip after the first inning. Probably I came out and was trying to throw the ball through Yachty. I'm just trying to, as the, as the game goes on, you go through, you know, parts of it, and you go through flows where you try to, you know, find a 
velo to kind of cruise that, and I, I try to take my not take my foot off the gas, but you know, I try so hard for a second there, and um, you know, it led to a leadoff walk, and then you know, we had to pick it back up, and then there in the third inning was able to take a little bit off it, and um, just try to execute pitches, and and sometimes that's the way the game goes. You find a, a velo that you can can cruise at, and it kind of took a second to to get everything in sync and, and get everything to fall in line. I actually respect the fact that he was able and willing to do that because there's a lot of guys that would almost go the opposite direction, right? Where they just keep trying to throw harder and harder and harder. Maybe my stuff will play up and that's the way that I can get out of this. And Jack did the opposite. He was like, all right, let's calm down a little bit here. Let's see if I can just start locating instead of trying to beat these guys with my stuff. Maybe this is just going to be a night where I have to use my defense behind me. And obviously that let him down at times in the second inning and certainly there in the first as well with the tough play by Donovan, but I respect the fact that he was willing to do that. He also, so I think it was Jim Hayes who asked this question. It's a fair one. He was trying to give Jack an out where he says, Hey, you know, do you expect to struggle in your first start start back? You know, this is just a part of the process for you to be able to get back. Jack was not willing to take that out. Here's what he had to say in response to that question. There's no part of the process of any of this. Like if I come out and I go and pitch, like I want to pitch well. It's not like, oh, well, you, you know, you, you pitch and it's the first one. Like, like it's, no, it's like you go out and you feel good. You felt good this whole time. And like you want to go out and, and pitch well and not have a first thing where you do. You make a bad pitch. Throw. I was like, OK, he takes advantage of it. We get a we get a you know, we we walk Hayes probably could have made better pitches there and then get the ground ball to you know on Vogelbach and you know it's a tough play for Donnie like okay that happens and then okay and then you gotta go get the next guy and make a bad pitch to Mitchell which just extends the inning even more so and then you know the inning after that you know I throw a ball away and you know that, that started it and it just was another weird inning but there's no like oh this is a process this is the first one like yeah okay yeah it's the first one but when you felt good and you come out and you'd be like yeah I feel good stuff's been great you know, come out and be like, oh, yeah, you know, command wasn't great. Like, yeah, that happens. You have games like that, but it's not it's always part of the process. Like, no. I see where he's coming from. And I think the part that was probably most frustrating for Jack Flaherty was the fact that he was the one telling the Cardinals, I don't need to go to the AAA. I'm good. And rightfully so. I mean, the guy gave up one hit through seven innings of rehab stints in AA and AAA. He showed the the fact that his stuff was able to play. He was recovering healthy. He was doing the side bullpen sessions. You never want to come out and stink in an outing at the major league level. And I don't think he stunk. I just think it was just a series of unfortunate events with the errors behind him. I see where he's coming from here. I think the part for me that was more infuriating by seeing people's reaction to it saying, well, he should have been down in AAA again another time, or they should have not listened to him and stuck him in AAA for more rehab stints. I, I don't the Ali Marmal has already showcased the ability to trust his players and he's done it. We've talked numerous times about it. If Jack's coming to him and saying, I don't need another rehab stint in AAA, I feel like my stuff can pitch here then I'm going to give the guy the shot as long as he comes out healthy. If he comes out injured, then it's kind of shame on me for not allowing him to go on a longer rehab stint. But again, I don't view this as, well, Jack should have been down in AAA for another five innings before you brought him up here. You were pitching against the Pirates. Jack Flaherty was dominating in the minor league levels. Let him go at the major leagues and see what he's got. And as long as he can accomplish the 60 pitches and be healthy, I'm fine with that. Yeah, it... 
I think it was the right call to have him be out here out, out there yesterday in the big league level. It just didn't go the way that anybody wanted it to, including Jack. You could clear, clearly hear his frustration after the game and what his press or what his uh, comments were. It, it was a bad outing, and there's no way around that. And I, there's no excuse for it either. By the way, like I understand he was amped up early on, but he had no command whatsoever. And it went south on him really quickly. And the thing that was frustrating for me watching it was you could see it got to him. And you don't want that to happen. But you you got to work through that at the major league level. No, I'm with you. I, and I again, I, I said, I, I don't think that it was a problem that they decided to do this. I just hate I, I didn't love his response early on. I was happy to see that third inning was super encouraging to me. He got through it in like 10 pitches. He looked much better. He honed everything in. He looked more relaxed. And now if you're the Cardinals, Ollie Marmol, Jack Flaherty, whoever, I think what you believe is that, hey, when he pitches against the Milwaukee Brewers in his next outing, it's going to be more of what you saw there in that third inning where he is more relaxed. He's honing things in. If he has to take a little bit off, he's not trying to overthrow things. But you do want him to be able to throw 94. That's part of what Jack Flaherty is. If he can't do that and command it, that is something that over the next few outings we need to be watching for. But right now I'm with you guys. I'm not super discouraged. I think he's going to be all right. Just not the way that you wanted that first start to go. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. David Panyota is going to join us coming up in about 15 minutes. He's the editor-in-chief of the fourth period. He's an analyst as well for Sirius XM NHL. He had a report yesterday on what the future could hold for Ville Husso. We'll ask him about Ville Husso's future, what he thinks he's going to get in free agency coming up at 1130. But next, if Jack Flaherty is healthy, Tanner thinks there's one team that they remind him of, and it was a team that won the World Series not too long ago. We'll tell you who that is coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, David Panyota is going to join the show. He had a report yesterday on Ville Husso and what he might command in free agency. Excited to talk to him about what Husso's future yeah, could hold. T-Bone, if you didn't know, uh, BK has acquired Matthew Kachuk, David Pasternak, and Jacob Chikrin. Resigned David wow. Perron and didn't give up Jake Neighbors. Oh, you're playing by the Rams salary cap rules? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, nice. Yeah. I like Prospects. It's actually the, the Mets salary cap rules. Uh, we we oh. have a Cohen tax that we're willing to pay here. Okay. I'm still I like Steve it. Cohen. Same person. It's basically the same. So we'll get into that coming up later on today. But right now, uh, Jack Flaherty obviously was not what he wanted to be last night. That, that was not the outing that he was looking for, that the Cardinals were looking for. It was encouraging to see him get through that third inning, but the first two innings were just so strange and there were errors all over the place. That's, that's not what you were hoping for. But if Jack is back to being himself, the Cardinals suddenly look like they've got a really good rotation. You've got a one, two, three of Flaherty, Wayno, Michaelis. That's awesome. If you have Hudson as your number four starter, I feel way better about him in that specific role. It's almost like you look at Tyler O'Neill. I don't think he's a cleanup hitter, but if he's batting sixth or seventh in your lineup, I feel really good about that. If you've got Dylan Carlson batting in that range as well, who buddy, that looks good. You'll change your tone in a couple of years when Dakota Hudson's the ace. Okay. But Tanner mentioned something today before the show as a comparison for what this Cardinals team could be and how they're constructed. I found it to be really interesting. Tanner, who was the team that you referenced? The 2019 Nationals. 
And the reason I bring that up, and it, and it does depend on if Jack Flaherty gets back to being Jack Flaherty. If he struggles and this is out the window and it's not a, a fair comp. But you look at that 2019 Nationals team, I mean, they were built on three legitimate top-end guys at the at the front of the rotation. You had Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, who was healthy, and Patrick Corbin, I believe, on the first year of his big contract. And he was pretty good for them that year as well. And then you had the guy, Anibal Sanchez. Everybody remembers him, how he was just so great in the NLCS. Yep. But if you're the Cardinals and you get Jack Flaherty getting back to that I'm not saying that 2019 second half form because you're not going to get that from Jack Flaherty. But if he pitches like he did at the beginning of the year last year, where I think he was nine and one, had like a 2.8 or 2.9 ERA, then you're talking about a team that has three top end legitimate guys in Jack Flaherty, Miles Michaelis, who's been awesome this year, and Adam Wainwright, who continues to defy Father Time. So you look at those three, and you and you're talking about a rotation that it's not a one for one comp because these were more built on strikeouts. Was that Nationals rotation? But you're talking about a rotation that is three workhorses that can go deep into postseason games, that can go five or six innings, carry the load for that rotation, and then you have a back end of the bullpen that we've talked about that can be lights out, and a Helsley, a Gallegos, and a Henesis Cabrera, and throwing an Andre Palante because at this point he's going to be in the bullpen for the playoffs. And Dakota Hudson, you mentioned he's the perfect number four. He's essentially the Anibal Sanchez, where he. He can give you a solid four or five innings for you in the postseason. He's going to get you a bunch of ground balls, and you hope to get out of that outing where he gives up maybe one or two runs, and you have a fighting chance in that playoff game. They remind me a, This team reminds me a lot of that 2019 national team because of the rotation if Jack Flaherty gets healthy. Now, the difference is they have a better bullpen than what I think that 19 nationals team had. Their bullpen was not very good. They were carried mightily from that rotation of theirs in that playoff run. And you look at the lineup as well. I mean, you're talking about a lineup that in in that run for the Nationals had Juan Soto, uh, Trey Turner, and uh, Anthony, Rendon. Anthony Rendon. Thank you. Of those three, I mean, you've got guys that comp pretty well to them. Trey Turner is essentially Tommy Edmond for this Cardinals team. Anthony Rendon is Nolan Arnato, and then they don't really have the outfield guys. That's the Juan Soto, but that's basically Paul Goldschmidt. He yep. he's basically hitting at a level that you expect from a Juan Soto. So this team, if you want to look at a comp potentially for this Cardinals team, and they're going to make a World Series run, it might be that 2019 Washington Nationals team. I like it. Like you said, the the biggest difference is the strikeouts in terms of what the the rotations, how they go about it. But the numbers are pretty similar. I mean those. The rotation that year, Strasburg had a 3-3 ERA. Same with Patrick Corbin. You had a 3-0 essentially from Max Scherzer and then a 3-8 from Anibal Sanchez. Shouldn't surprise anybody if those are pretty similar to the numbers that these these guys in your rotation put up. The other, th- the other team that I think has some similarities, and I'm sure I'm going to get knocked for this here in St. Louis, but it's the 2016 Cubs. I mean, you look at the way that that was constructed. Their their rotation was really solid that year. They had Lester having a borderline career year. He had that playoff success as well as a, a later in, in his career veteran. Jake Arrieta had a really good season that year. Kyle Hendricks was awesome for them. And then John Lackey is basically their version of modern day Wayno uh, here in St. Louis. And then you had the stalwarts in in their lineup with Rizzo and Bryant. And at that point in time, you had uh, Dexter Fowler having a tremendous season going into his walk year. And then Ben Zobrist was essentially their version of whether you want to call it um, Brendan Donovan or Tommy Edmond. Both of those guys kind of comp to him. So I, I think regardless of who the team is that you're looking at, they have some comparisons to teams that have won World Series in recent years. But the big thing is, you have to have Jack Flaherty back to form. If you don't have Jack Flaherty being back to what he was before all of these injuries, 
they don't compare to these teams because then you have two guys at the front end of your rotation. You've got kind of a, a tweener in Dakota Hudson where some days he looks really good and other days it's not so great. And that looks great as your fourth starter, but is it really great as a number three? I, I'm not so sure right now. They need Jack Flaherty in a big way to be able to round into form. They also have to figure out what they're doing in this bullpen. And guys, I we got to do this quickly because we've got David Peñota on the other side. The circle of trust? Is it back? You can't do that quickly. Alex, what do you think about potentially using Johan Oviedo out of the bullpen? <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. I, I I don't mind it, but I'm going to have tight butt cheeks during it. I, I mean, in all reality, and no disrespect to Johan Oviedo, but I haven't gotten the benefit of doubt from him to where I feel confident when he's on the mound. I mean, even last night when he came into the game in between Flaherty and Palante, I'm thinking, oh, God, where are we going with this one right now? And he pitched well. Respect to him, bullpen might be a better suited role for him. And in all reality, if you're asking me if I'd rather have Johan Oviedo or a Drew Verhagen on the mound, I'd probably lean more towards Johan Oviedo because I've seen that stuff. But I'm thinking more middle innings coming in relief of pitchers. Sure, yeah. I'm not thinking high leverage situations. No, I, I'm for with Oviedo. you. You're not putting him in. I mean, you've got your high leverage. I think guys. he's a good depth piece for. I think he's a good piece to strengthen an already strong bullpen. I would agree with that. I, I I view him as a guy that, yeah, I think he's going to transition into a bullpen role. I, I don't think he's going to be a starter long-term if he's with the Cardinals organization. Maybe he gets an opportunity elsewhere. But I, I think his role would be that kind of what you saw yesterday, where it's kind of the middle relief guy, or long relief, you want to call him that, where he's going to go basically one time through a lineup, and that's what you're going to get from him. I looked yesterday. He went two in the third innings pitch. He went through the lineup one time, and that yep. was it. And that's what you would expect from Johan Oviedo, as long as he is, because he has the stuff to play. And there's no doubt about it. He does have the stuff. And I do think his development did get hurt a little bit during that pandemic season when they kind of brought him up and probably rushed his development. But I think he can be a guy that can be a solid middle relief guy for you. I agree with Alex. So right now he's probably more of just a depth piece in my mind. But I think if time goes on and he can continue to develop and grow with his stuff, he could potentially be a guy that you're talking about as a solid middle relief slash long reliever for the Cardinals out of their bullpen. Yeah, I think right now the way that I would view him is he's like the seventh guy in your bullpen. And if you go to him in spots where you're trying to keep the game close, like yesterday, your your starter goes three, four innings once they have all those guys back. And you have Johan Oviedo pitch two to three innings in that spot. I feel pretty good about it. And I I just don't think that he's a guy that's ever going to be able to go extended run because eventually he's going to lose his command and that's going to hurt you. And as you extend him further, you're more vulnerable in those spots when he sees the lineup multiple times. I kind of like him as an option, as a not high leverage arm. I, I agree with you on that. But if you could throw him into that like fifth, sixth, that bridge range, kind of like the idea of him being that guy and I know he's a he's a prospect for you and people do not like putting prospects into the bullpen I think he's exactly the type of player that might benefit from that coming up in about 15 minutes or so we'll get into some questions and answers 65780 is the air comfort service text line but next David Panyota of Sirius XM NHL had a report yesterday on what he thinks Ville Husso could command on the open market we'll talk about that next here on 101 ESPN we're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll get to questions and answers coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. But right now we are going out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Happy to be joined by the editor in chief of the fourth period. He's an analyst as well for Sirius XM NHL. He's David Panyota joining us here on BK and Ferrario. David, we appreciate the time as always, man. Let's start out with a game from last night. What'd you make of Colorado being able to take down Tampa Bay in the first game in overtime of the Stanley Cup final. Yeah, you know what? It, it showed how much those nine days off really benefited the Avs. Because, I mean, I was there in Edmonton for the last couple of games last round, and I saw how banged up a lot of those players were off the ice. Uh, so to get that extra, you know, almost the week and a half off to kind of mend, get their legs back under them, get to recover, um, certainly, certainly paid dividends, especially – you know, for, for guys like Josh Vanson, I know is dealing with a few things or a few other players dealing with some things, getting that extra time off really benefited them. And they utilized their speed to their advantage and they just kept peppering Vasilevsky with shots and, and, and it ultimately worked out. We're obviously going to see some adjustments as we go from the Tampa Bay lightning, especially in game two on Saturday. But John Cooper even said the better team won last night. Um, and there's no denying that that Colorado just was a better team. It was an uncharacteristic kind of performance from Victor Hedman, as well as Vassi in that first period. That was the, that's the first time in his playoff career that he's given up three goals in the first period. Uh, so, look, great performance by Colorado. I think Tampa just got a little too shell-shocked right out of the gate, and while well, they did come back, Colorado overall just a better team in game one. David, one thing I am curious about on this matchup is is Colorado. I mean, there's no there's no question that they are a elite team this season. But with so many guys yeah. headed into unrestricted free agency and Kadri and Burakovsky and even Achushkin, does this look like the all-in year for Colorado? Not saying that they're going to turn into tank mode, but are they going to be this good moving forward? Well, Kemper is also a USA, so they're going to have to figure out the goaltending position in a few weeks. But um, they've got about, I think it's 26, in and around 26 million cap space. So they have a lot of flexibility in terms of rejigging the roster if they need to, if they can't keep guys around. The core of this team is still intact. And when you've got Kale McCarr, who's just entering, just scratching the surface of what he can do, which is already remarkable, um, you've got him and then McKinnon, Landeskog, Rantanen, uh, Devon Taves has been fantastic. Him and uh, McCarr are arguably the best defensive pair in these playoffs. They, they got the core still there. So I, I think their window is going to be open for some time. It's just a matter of how are they going to you know, fill some of the holes that are, are obviously going to be left once free agency hits. I don't know if they can afford or if it's, it's financially responsible for them to put you know, seven million, seven and a half million to Nazem Kadri to try to fill some of the other holes as well. But we'll see. I mean, this this is a very strong team. They're well coached. They're well put together. They've got a, a sound defensive core. They don't even have Sam Girard uh, playing. He's hurt. So you add him to the mix, especially going into next season. They're, they're going to be competitive for quite some time. Final thing on the Stanley Cup final before we move on to some of the Blues and this off season as as we're approaching the start of that off season. Do you think that last night showed anything about the way that these two teams are going to attack one another? I, I know there's always this chess match, match right between games where there are adjustments yeah. that both teams will be uh, making. What do you think we saw last night that will continue moving forward in this series? I think Colorado understands 
um, that while Tampa does have Vasilevsky in net, they, they're a very sound, strong, structured defensive group. Uh, they can play the opposite end of the ice very well. And for Colorado, it's just an onslaught of an attack. And it, it worked in game one. I've got to imagine they're going to continue to, to at least attempt to do that. Um, I think most of the adjustments are going to be made on Tampa's side. With two days off between games one and two, it's going to give the Bolts coaching staff a lot of an opportunity, even their players, to look at a lot of tape, analyze how game one went, and, and rejig their plan of attack a little bit. I think they're going to try to be and continue to be structured defensively, obviously, and try to contain the opposition. And the other thing, too, is Colorado's the home team, so they've got last change. They can do the matchups uh, and align the matchups well after faceoffs. That'll shift a little bit when we get back to Tampa because then Tampa will be able to do that. Uh, but I think they're going to just kind of look at this today, tomorrow, going into Saturday's game two, make a few adjustments, tweak a few things, and be a little bit more aggressive, uh, I think, with the puck. They were a little too lax at times. And while they did tie the game, those two goals happened in, in short order. It was just off miscues by Colorado. They took advantage of that, and Tampa's great at doing that. But they need to be a little bit more responsive on the attack um, and, and be more consistent that way. For Colorado, whatever you did in game one, do that again because it was fantastic. All right, David, now to the juicy stuff here in St. Louis, <laughs> the offseason, because that's what everyone wants to talk about. I want to start with David Perron, um, because I, I think yeah. you, a lot of national analysts, us in St. Louis, we all expect Perron to be back with the Blues. But when it comes to contract situation, do you feel like he might price himself out of St. Louis? I don't think so. I, I think he, you know, he certainly wants to, just like everybody else, you want to get paid. You want to get paid what you're worth. But, uh, you know, at the same time, is it a matter of chasing an extra half a mil somewhere versus staying in an environment that he absolutely enjoys and loves? I don't think we're going to get to that type of scenario. I, I think it's just a matter of, all right, let's hunker down. Let's figure out the game plan, uh, how this roster is going to look next season, and let's try to hammer something out. He's made it abundantly clear, and he's you know, totally real in saying that he wants to stay. He wants to stick around. The guys want him there. Management wants to keep him. I think it's understood that they'll figure it out. Um, and you know, when, when they put pen to paper, that's when everything will be locked in. But I would be very, very surprised if he's not a member of the Blues next season. A guy that I don't think will be a member of the Blues, and I'm curious your read on this, David, is Ville Husso. He's hitting unrestricted yeah. free agency. He's one of the top goalies that are going to be available on the market after the season that he just had. What do you think is going to be the cost, and where do you think are some of the contenders to land his services? Yeah, I, I think he's already understood that he won't be back next season. Um, and, and I think he's comfortable and, and understands that. Uh, this was a stepping stone for him this season, certainly to prove that he can handle the number one duties. Um, but there are, there are a lot of teams that need help between the pipes. Edmonton will definitely have a conversation when they're able to with Huso's camp uh, about joining the Oilers. The New Jersey Devils, I expect to be part of that mix as well. Depending what happens with Jack Campbell in Toronto, if they can't work something out, he's going to be a target for the Maple Leafs as well. And then you've got a few other teams. Chicago needs a goalie. Buffalo needs a goalie. Does he want to go to those environments? He's got a decision to make too, but there are going to be contending teams that, with, with Edmonton at the top of the list that are going to be trying to go after him. Now, based on you know, how he performed, how the numbers work, probably I would imagine the three and a half to $4.5 million range on an AAV 
per season, which doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, when you've got Binner already at six million, do you want to allocate nine, ten million to goaltending? Yeah. Probably not. So I, I and I think he's understand that. I think the message has already been been put across, and he gets it. Uh, but that's probably the number I would anticipate. I guess you're probably looking at a three-year contract, most likely puts him to about thirty. You want to see where he's at. Something in that range, twelve million over three years, somewhere in that ballpark. I could see him ending up with, but it, it obviously depends where. But they're going to be suitors for him, definitely. David, one more from me. And when you look at this offseason for the Blues, Doug Armstrong said it at the end of the Blues season that he doesn't expect any major tweaks, which to me reads he's not going big sea fishing and free agency for some of these big time names. But do you feel like the Blues could be players in free agency in some way? Or do you feel like if they're doing anything this offseason, it's going to be via trade? Yeah, I think if anything, look, they really like their roster and the fact that you have you know, some of the younger guys that are, are really starting to, to cement their position on the roster. Of course, Thomas and Cairo being two specifics, Barbashev with a solid year as well. Um, I think, if anything, you're looking at some cosmetic changes. They, I mean, obviously, they've got to figure out their goaltending to bring in a, a backup, and I think if they can bring in a veteran backup, that might be a good play for them. Um, and it's likely the route that I, would, that, that I think they're going. Uh, but other than that, yeah, just maybe some cosmetic tweaks here and there. Um, it sounds like the Tarasenko thing. Everybody's saying the right things on both sides that water under the bridge, they're moving forward together, which is a good sign. Um, but other than, other than, you know, goaltending, maybe a couple tweaks, you know, here and there. And, and then you kind of go from there. I mean, you know, other than Perrault, Bozak, do you, do you look to bring him? Do you look at another veteran guy to kind of stabilize the bottom six of your fourth line? Again, those kinds of small little tweaks here and there is, is probably the direction they go. If anything, maybe it's keeping Nick Letty around on, on the defensive core or, or, or an equivalent to bringing him in to really solidify their, their, their six on the back end. But I don't expect anything big from them, and that's because they really like what they've pieced together here with this roster. David, what about the trademark? And by the way, we're talking to David Panyota of the fourth period. You can find his work over there. He's got a piece from yesterday kind of opening up what this silly season is going to be this summer. Check it out. The fourth period.com is where you find it. You can also follow him on Twitter at the fourth period. I know we've talked a ton about Jacob Chikrin, what he could acquire, what what acquiring him would cost here in St. Louis. Uh, Matthew Kachuk's name certainly comes up in conversations here. Obviously those would be two big moves, but if the Blues were looking especially at Chikrin, do you think the cost is going to be something like a first-round pick, Scott Perunovich, and maybe an Ivan Barbashev, or is it going to cost more than that? It's it's more than that. It's it's a big price tag for this kid um, who still has three years left at $4.6 million cap hit for a top-pair lefty. I mean, you're looking at three to four assets, depending on what it is. Yes, you're looking at a first-round pick. You're looking at a top prospect. You're looking at an NHL, a young NHL-proven player, and young, I'm talking like, you know, in the 20 to 23 range, and then perhaps another asset depending on how they value the two players involved. It's a high price. It's why he wasn't traded at the deadline. They haven't balked from that price. It's still the same. Um, there, there are certainly teams that would love to make this happen, and maybe things get a little bit closer to once we get closer to draft time. People get a little trigger happy and, and want to make something happen. The allure of a first-round pick um, becomes a little bit more prominent because it's in the now 
so if, if Chikrin's moved, I suspect it'll happen around the draft, but the price hasn't changed. And if I'm the Blues, quite frankly, as, as fantastic of a player as he is, and he would make any team that much better, I just don't see them justifying the price based on how they've structured their roster already. Uh, maybe they go in a different direction, like I said, trying to get a little bit either keep Letty or bring somebody else in um, uh, at a lower cost. But looking at their decor, I, I just don't see a scenario where where it makes sense for them to almost you're almost overpaying to get this player because of how beneficial his cap hit is, in addition to how talented he is. So I, I don't think it's a fit for St. Louis, but I wouldn't be surprised certainly if another team pays that price. Man, that's interesting. David, we appreciate the time as always, man. Thanks so much for joining us today. Enjoy yourself covering this uh, Stanley Cup final, and we'll talk with you again soon as we get closer to what you call the silly season. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Enjoy the games. You got it. That's David Pagnota joining us here on 101 ESPN. Man, if that's the cost for Jacob Chikrin, I think we can write it off. Yeah. If it's looking like it'll take, like, uh, I mean, the, the players that fit into the criteria of what he's talking about for the Blues is Jordan Kairou, Robert Thomas, that's kind of it. Look, if it was Perunovic, Barbashev in a first that got it done, it would have happened already. Now, uh, there is a chance that maybe Arizona gets trigger happy. And I mean, Perunovic was hurt at the time when the trade deadline was taken. Place right, too. but I mean, if you're making that trade, yes, he's hurt, but you're also, Chikrin was hurt also at the time of the trade deadline, and you're looking at the potential of what that player is and the cost control. But as David mentioned, like teams do get trigger happy at the trade dead or at the draft and want to get a deal done for a deal done sense, and maybe there's a, a pick where the Blues would be selecting in the first round this year that Bill Armstrong says, well, we, sh- we should get this guy. And then they're like, all right, well, give us this so we could get that first round pick. There's always things that can happen. We've seen crazier things. Heck, Yuri Laterra's entire salary <laughs> was traded to Philly for Braden Shen. But, I mean, right now, I mean, it's going to be more expensive than what people think. Because, again, from my understanding, the Blues were in the final stretch of acquiring Chikrin at the deadline. And then it got caught up by what Arizona was asking for. Yeah, if they're asking for more than that, I mean, I, I know we... That's a lot. Like what you're giving up in that scenario of a first round pick, which is not an insignificant asset, and one of your top prospects in Scott Perunovich. It seems like a lot to us, but if you look at it from Arizona's perspective, you're getting a 26th overall pick. You're getting a player who's, what, 26, 27 years old in Barbashev, Mm -hmm. and he's only got one year left before he's an unrestricted free agent where you're going to have to pay him probably a lot more money than what he's making now. And then you got a Scott Perunovich who's been injured for two straight seasons at the pro level. And also is considered to be one of the top offensive defensemen prospects in the sport. Is that what he's considered now, or was that what he was considered when he was drafted? especially after what we saw from him in the playoffs, he should be considered that. I, I don't know. Like I said, it seems like a lot from... Our perspective, but if you're Bill Armstrong, I think you look at it as you're getting a top defenseman for $4.6 million for the next three years. And if they want more than that, they can't. They're not getting it from the Blues. like that. I, and that's the thing that's kind of concerning, honestly. Is, then you're back to square one if you're St. Louis absolutely, also. Absolutely, because if you're telling me that my options are, okay, Jacob Chikrin off the table now, potentially. And this is just going based on that reporting that we heard there from David Panyota. Obviously, there's a lot more time before we get to the NHL draft. But if he's off the board, man, there ain't a whole lot of options. We've talked about this on the free agent market. There's basically none. Like Nick Letty is probably your best case scenario, and it's going to cost more than you want to be able to re-sign him. It's probably going to be four-plus million dollars on a multi-year deal. You're looking at like a four-year Four and a half per year type mm-hmm. of a deal for Nick Letty. That's 
about $20 million almost that you're spending on Letty, or you're going out to the trade market, and none of those guys are going to be cheap. Maybe you are looking at, you've mentioned Sanheim before, Provorov, both of whom are in Philly. It's just, it's light. It becomes really difficult to be able to envision a scenario where you're super enthusiastic about what they're able to do on that top pairing defensively. And then maybe it goes back to what we talked about a few weeks ago, which is, do you just consider running this thing back with the players that you have currently throwing numbers at the issue? And then if it doesn't work again, like last year, you get to the trade deadline and you're once again looking yeah. for that top pairing don't, defensively. Don't get me wrong. I still think they make a move to get Jacob Chikrin. I, I think something happens to, and this is why where we go back to the question that was thrown at us before of, do you see Doug Armstrong making a surprising move this offseason? I could see it being Chikrin and it being a, wow, that's what you got him for. I could see it happening. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, the Cardinals are taking care of business with their schedule right now, but their schedule right now is super light. How much we should we read into that? We'll talk about that coming up at 12 o'clock. Questions and answers, though, coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 6-5-7-8-0 service text line for questions and answers. Let's bring our off-air conversation on the air. The Cardinals just announced that Corey Dickerson is going to begin in, uh, a rehab assignment today right. with Memphis. That's what gets you excited? Oh, uh, yeah. So well, these, I haven't had a lot of Cardinal news last <laughs> week. so They'll have about two weeks to be able to determine what the next course of action is with Dickerson before they have to make some sort of a move here. Let's first operate under the assumption that they're going to bring him back. Let's start there, and then we can work our way backwards. What is the move? Because we just went through the roster. You're not changing anything with your pitching staff. You're 13 and 13 right now, so you're not taking any of those pitchers off the roster. You're not messing with your catchers. You're not messing with your starting outfields right now. I think the guys that you're looking at are Edmundo Sosa and Juan Yepes. But you also have the Paul DeYoung piece that plays into all of this as well. He might be getting closer to making it back with the big leagues. Do you think they would give actual consideration to sending Yepes back down to AAA to bring back Corey Dickerson? And is that something you guys would be considering right now? There's no way I would consider it. Will they consider it? Probably. But I don't I don't see the point of sending them back down to the minors. Like, even the excuse of, oh, we want him to get every day at bats. Okay. I, I mean, it's the same thing as what Tyler O'Neill was. Like, you keep sending him back down to the minors, and all he's going to do is just hit home runs and get on base and just dominate. Like, why are we sending him back down there so we can get consistent at bats? I think if you want consistent at bats for him, find him consistent at bats in the major league level. And I know it's difficult because you've got your outfielders have been done right now. Well, I mean, I just don't see a benefit of sending a Wanya Pez down to AAA so he can dominate AAA. But then tell him, well, we just don't have at-bats for you up here at the major league level. I'd find a way to make a move with somebody or. But who? Because like we just went through the roster. What, what are you doing instead? Like if you're not sending down Juan Yepes and let's say that the Cardinals are bringing back Dickerson. I'm not. I wouldn't. I would just say we're DFAing Dickerson whenever this rehab assignment is over. And you, you live with whatever that ends up meaning. But if they believe that they can extract more value out of Dickerson. If you're not sending down Yepes and that's not the move that you would do, Alex, what are you doing instead? You're DFAing Sosa? I mean, what do you need Sosa for right now? 
other than to fill a void for when you need a day off for Tommy. Okay, but you got three infielders right now on top of having Arenado and Goldschmidt who are playing every day, and you're using the luxury of the DH. And I know Juan Yepes. You get a little light with infielders that can yeah. play second, short, or third if you DFA Sosa and don't bring up DeYoung, though. And if you're bringing up DeYoung as well as Dickerson, now you're talking about both Sosa and Yepes. And, and he brings a little bit of versatility being able to play third and second, and he's good defensively. That's the one knock on Yepes that I think is hurting him here, too, is the defense, as we've heard, it's mostly, yeah, he catches the ball, but it, it's nothing stellar. I I do think the move would be to send Juan Yepes down. I, I mean, I kind of agree with Alex. Like, I, I would not send him I down. I, I'm with you. I would probably just DFA Dickerson because I think Yepes gives you better quality at-bats, but he's not getting playing time right now. And honestly, if you still believe you can salvage the, what is it, $5 million from Corey Dickerson, then yeah, it's worth it to bring him back up and send Yepes down. For what it's worth, Alex, I'm just playing devil's advocate. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I would not send Juan Yepes down. I think he has more value to the big league club than Corey Dickerson does, but... If I'm just playing from the president of baseball operations owner level and they spent $5 million to bring this guy in and they want to find out if he was just maybe hurt earlier this year and he was trying to work his way through it. I don't know if that was the case or not. I don't think it was, but I think that's probably the way that they would rationalize it is, hey, Yepes, go down, start crushing the baseball again, work on your mechanics. He he has opened up his his front hip a little bit and it's not been great for him at the plate of late, but that that would probably be the thing that I would be looking at. All right, a couple more here. 65780 Zero Comfort Service text line from the 314. Guys, with Father's Day coming up, what is a memorable sports memory that you had with your dad? <laughs> well, I don't know if he'd call it memorable, but it was memorable for me. Uh, game six of the Stanley Cup final. I mean, game seven, obviously, but I didn't get to spend that with my dad because I was in Boston. I, I FaceTimed him afterwards. But game six, he and I both rode down to Enterprise Center together. He got a ticket. He was in the stands for it. I was, of course, uh, doing the, the pre and post. And then after the game, I brought him up top to uh, sit up there with us for problem was i think that was the game that what was it, it was six two loss or something like yeah. that like he dropped a couple thousand dollars to go to a game that they just got smashed in but it's still a cool moment that both of us are going to remember they won the cup that year and he was at his first ever stanley cup final while i was on the air with it so that was about as memorable of a sports moment as i can ask for yeah I, I, the thing for me is just always playing wiffle ball with my dad in the backyard and just grilling that it's not even like a sports memory because i can't remember if we've been to a sporting event on father's day together but just always playing playing wiffle ball in the backyard with my dad. That's where I got the love of baseball was him teaching me the game, doing it every night while we were grilling. Uh, Just being able to do that with my dad all the time was always special. Uh, For me, it was in 2006. I was growing up in Kansas City, of course, and the Chiefs hosted the first ever primetime Thanksgiving game. And my dad surprised me with tickets the day of Thanksgiving uh, and said, hey, we're going to the Chiefs game tonight. So I went to the Chiefs versus the Broncos on Thanksgiving night. We went to like this Uh, all-you-can-eat Thanksgiving buffet beforehand, and then (laughs) it was an awesome game. It was legitimately like Arrowhead's a really loud stadium. It was the loudest that I've ever, to this day, heard Arrowhead was for that game against the Broncos back in 2006. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was the first ever Thursday night football game as well. Uh, So it was like this really cool, unique uh, experience, and that was that was probably my favorite thing. Uh, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. Coming up at the 12 o'clock hour, we will get to the return of the T-Bone 3. Oh, Tanner's three storylines that he missed while he was out that he wants to be able to discuss today. So we'll get into that coming up in the 12 o'clock hour. But next, the Cardinals are taking care of business right now, but they're doing so against the poor opponents that are on their schedule. 
Do we take that into account as we try to analyze what they're doing currently? Talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Uh, I thought it was a really good homestand. There's some guys in there that have been grinding. They deserve that off day tomorrow. Uh, they'll enjoy it to go 5-2. and two. It's good. It was a good homestand for the Cardinals, 5-2. and two, But it came against the Reds and the Pirates. So the question here is, are you happy that they're going 5-2 and two against whoever's on their schedule? Or are you a little skeptical of the recent success given the opponents that they've faced? Rick Hummel had a good stat in his piece earlier today over on the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. The Cardinals are 15-6, and six, Alex, this season when they play against the Cubs, the Reds, or the Pirates. They are 22-22 and 22 this year when they play against literally anybody else in Major League Baseball. What does that tell you about this current Cardinals team? This is where we have a discussion. Yeah, no, <laughs> I know. This is where I also sit here and have to ponder where I'm going with this. Tanner, what do you think about the fact that the Cardinals are 15-6 and six against teams named the Cubs, the Reds, and the Pirates, and 22-22 and 22 against everybody else? I mean, I, I just view it as, you know, that's kind of what I expected the Cardinals to be this season. I mean, you have to take care of business against those three teams that you mentioned, and they're doing that, and then you just got to play around 500 against everybody else around the league, and we went and we looked. I think it's been they've played nine teams outside of the NL Central, and we deemed that six of those nine were high quality or quality opponents, not necessarily high quality. And then the th- there was three that were uh, the lower quality, and they're six and five against those three. I think it was Baltimore, and then I my I can't remember who the other two were in that one, Arizona and somebody else. But this is kind of what I would expect from the St. Louis Cardinals. They just have to take care of business against those teams. And then whatever they do against the rest of the league, it should be around that 500 mark. So to me, I, I don't read too much into it. I don't look at it and go, oh, well, they're not a good team because they're playing the Reds and the Pirates and the Cubs and they're beating them. They're just average. No, they're a good team. All these other teams take advantage when they play teams below 500 and beat up on teams that are bad in their division. So the Cardinals are just doing what a good baseball team does. I, I think the Cardinals are legitimately the third or fourth best team in the National Leagues, and I, I think they're proving that so far this year. I get it. You'd like to see them better against teams besides the Cubs, Pirates, and Reds be above that 500 mark. But honestly, they're going to be around there probably for a good chunk of the year. They'll probably finish a little bit above that. So I just view it as, you know, they're playing at the level that I expected them to play at. They're playing at the level that they need to be at to be a playoff team. I just, I think, look at other teams around Major League Baseball. Like, the Dodgers are around, I think they're a couple games over 500 against teams that are above 500. They're 13 and 11. I mean... I I think the only team in the National League that's significantly good against really good teams are the what New York Mets. They're like eight 20, or 24 and 15. So you have one team that is more than five games above 500 against above 500 teams. So to sit here and say, well, yeah, they're doing against the Cubs, Reds and the Pirates. OK, well, other teams are doing it against inferior teams in their division and they're viewed as superior teams in the National League. So I think if you're going to talk about the cards in that sense, you're going to talk about the Dodgers in that sense. You're going to talk about the Padres in that sense. All of these teams people view as top teams in the National League. Sure, it's against really bad teams, but the Braves are playing in a division with some really bad teams. So are the Mets. So are the Dodgers. I just I think that 
is you're you're taking advantage of the teams that you need to beat. And then when you play against the in the superior teams, that's where it becomes a real test and measuring stick of how you're going to play. When I look at what teams are doing against these above 500 opponents, it tells me there's two teams that are clearly superior to everybody else. And then everybody else is kind of fighting for that third best team in, in all of baseball. I'm not just talking about the National League. The Yankees are 17 and seven against teams that there are on their schedule that are above 500 so far this year. That is wildly ahead of everybody else in baseball. That's a 71% winning percentage. They're, they're unbelievable. They're on a historically great pace right now. They are, I think, currently on pace to break the Seattle Mariners record for wins in a season. And then you've got the New York Mets, who, as we said, Alex, are 24 and 15 in those in those games. Everybody else is kind of around that 500 mark. The Dodgers are 13 and 11. Houston Astros, who are a very good team, uh, eight and seven. They've only played 15 games so far this year against teams that are above 500. The Giants are two games over 500, as are the Padres. Uh, The Tampa Bay Rays are 11 and 10. The Toronto Blue Jays, who I believe to be a good team, they're two games under 500 against the teams on their schedule that are above 500 on the season. Atlanta, who is just on a torrid pace right now, uh, they've won what is like 14 straight games. They are 12 and 14 against opponents on their schedule that are above 500. And as we mentioned, Cardinals Cardinals so far this year are 14 and 16 in those games. That's where you need to be. You'd like to see them be above 500 in, in that range. And I think they will be by the end of the year. But as long as you can be around that 500 mark, that's the mark of a good team in modern Major League Baseball. Doesn't mean you're great. Nobody other than the Yankees and the Mets this year so far, in my opinion, have been truly great teams But the Cardinals are in that next category, and if they can continue being on this stretch where they're winning like 65-ish percent of their games against these below 500 teams, that's where you make your your hay. That's how you end up racking up these these runs. That's how you rack up the statistics for your uh, best players. That's how you rack up the wins, and when you get to the end of the season, it doesn't matter who they came against. They're not going to break it down like the BCS used to in college football. It's just how many wins did you have, and is that enough to be able to win your division or get into the playoffs? And if you keep doing this against the Reds, the Pirates, and the Cubs, it's going to be enough for you if you go against 500 against these other teams. Like, I don't hear a lot of people, and I know it's in the American League, so you're not going to get into that. I don't hear a lot of people when you're talking about the Houston Astros sitting here saying, well, all they do is, you know, they they struggle against the superior teams, but when they play against the Athletics and the Rangers and the Angels and the Mariners, they beat up on them. Now, I know some of those teams have taken a step, obviously, towards being better than what they used to be, but... Again, Houston's in first place in the AL West like they usually are for, what, the last five, ten seasons. And when you talk about an athletics team that's got 21 wins, if you talk about a Mariners team that's kind of a middling team, and then the Rangers, isn't that kind of the same thing? Where They're good because they play in a division where they can beat up on those teams. Yeah. And the other thing for me is, like, you look at the eye test, too. I mean, I don't I don't view the Cardinals. Look, they were two and they're done playing the Mets. They went two and five against the Mets. That's the one team they've been below 500. I believe in the National League this year. They didn't look completely outmatched against the New York Mets. In fact, Mets. it took some wild games exactly. for the Mets to go 5-2 and two against the Cardinals. So, so you're talking about when I, when I watch them against 500 teams, yeah, look, I get it. They're 500 against everybody else, but there's nobody that's really, in my opinion, outmatched the Cardinals. I mean, Tampa Bay swept them, but I, I didn't get a chance to see that series, so this would be up to you guys to say this, but I didn't even view like Tampa Bay where I'd say, yeah, they completely outmatched the Cardinals. I think it was and just a bad three-game stretch. Innings, and yeah. the other one, the Cardinals just didn't hit. Uh, they, they were terrible with runners in scoring position, lost it 2-1. And Michael was through an eight-inning he was outstanding. Game. Yesterday, My, uh, Ollie Marmel said that he was more impressed with what Miles Michaelis did against Tampa in that game than he was during that 
near no hitter against the Pirates. So long as you don't look outmatched against these 500 teams, then I then I feel fine about what the Cardinals are. And I get it. People say, well, they're only 500 against these 500 teams. How do you expect them to win in the playoffs? Again, the eye test, I don't feel like they're completely outmatched. And if they get into the playoffs, again, I agree with PK's assessment. I think the Mets are really the great only great team in the National League. And again, you mentioned it. It just came down to some wild games that ended that uh, where the Mets went 5-2 and two against St. Louis. So I don't even view it as, okay, well, Cardinals, they, they, they're, they're going to struggle in the playoffs when they reach these 500 teams. No, they don't look outmatched. I think it, the thing that people hate to hear where anything can happen in the postseason, I think that is just completely true with this the National League as a whole throwing the Mets into that category if the Cardinals can just find a way to take care of business against the bad teams, go around 500, sneak, get in, and then anything can happen. Yeah, I mean, the Mets series, I went back and looked at it. You're talking of the 11-4 game. That was it. All the other ones were two or three run differentials. But you won the series against the Giants. That's a team that people view as very good. You split a series against Toronto, a team that people view very good. You swept the San Diego Padres, and you were in every one of those games, with the exception of that 11-3 loss to Tampa. Those are all teams that are viewed as teams that could compete for a World Series, and the Cardinals are evenly matched with those teams in every single series. So for me, I don't know how you look at it and say, well, all they do is beat the Cubs, Pirates, and Reds. No, they're with the, all the other teams. It's just baseball in the middle of a season. 65780 is your comfort service text line. I love this text from the 314. Guys, everything that you're describing right now is why I hate baseball. Look at all the other sports. Being 500 in those sports is not considered to be good, but in baseball, it makes you a quality team. I mean, can we talk about football for a minute? Like, If you go, for example, the Cincinnati Bengals last year, they went 10-7. and 7. That's a 588 winning percentage. You look across Major League Baseball this year, the teams that are in that range – the Atlanta Braves, the Cardinals are at a 57% winning percentage right now. Uh, the Twins, the Minnesota Twins are at 57%. The Toronto Blue Jays and the Rays are both right around that range. It, it's no different than football. The teams that we consider to be pretty good, really solid, are in that exact same range. Are you going to get those like 14-3 and three type of teams in baseball? No, because that's not really how the sport works. Like A, a really good series is winning two out of three. That's a 67% winning percentage. That, that's really good. That's like a 12 and four, what previously used to be 12 and four, now like 12 and five type of winning uh, percentage. That's pretty good in football. If you go 12 and five, that's a really good season. So I don't think it's all that different, even though it might feel different because the numbers, it just gets to be higher in terms of the number of games that you're played. Coming up in about 15 minutes, T-Bone has his three storylines that he wanted to talk about while he was not here that he will be able to talk about today. Does one involve a station wagon? No. Oh, yeah, we we gave our thoughts on what your trip looked like while you were gone. You were in a station Station wagon. wagon. It was the old Woody with the the wooden sides to it. You were looking out the back window in a car seat. Waving at people when they drove by. I did wave at a couple people when they drove by. You had your collared shirt on, buttoned up to the top. (laughs) Yeah. McDonald's next to you. Looking good. Or as you like to call it, McDanks. No, I did not have McDanks. Went with the Texas food. Uh, did you get a uh, Whataburger while you were down there? Did not get a Whataburger. Really? No. You go to it's Texas kind of, and well, get a Whataburger? A, that's kind of a chain. I wanted to go like... Yeah, but it's a Texas chain. Yeah, whatever. Alongside <laughs> <laughs> Alex Ferrario, Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kiley. What happened last night for the Lightning in the first period? And is Alex convinced that this is the Avalanche series to win? Plus, who's going to be the Blues' backup goalie next year? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Hop 
Buffer had his shot blocked by Hedman. Score! Burakovsky on the follow-up! And game one goes to the Avs in overtime! With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. that's what it sounded like last night as the Colorado Avalanche win game number one of the Stanley Cup final against the Tampa Bay Lightning. They got up to an early lead and it was just over from there, Alex. And then, of course, overtime, you end up getting that big goal to finish things off. Did that change at all your thoughts going into this series? Because I know we talked about this yesterday. He said Vasilevsky is unlike anything other than Jordan Bennington and even exceeding that, let's be honest that the Avs have seen in the playoffs, and that's going to be the reason why you were picking the Tampa Bay Lightning. Do you still feel that way, or did last night dissuade you at all? No, I still feel that way. Um, I mean, look, Colorado has been really good, which, by the way, T-Bone pointed out last night, still the only team to beat Colorado in the playoffs. Your St. Louis Blues. Let's go. But it it doesn't change. crazy. I know. won the cup then. I'm I'm just going to throw that out there. I'm Bennington doesn't get ran, might be in the cup final right now, up one nothing. It doesn't change my opinion, though. Uh, look, Colorado, we all know, they are an elite team. They've got the talent. There's no question. But Darcy Kemper does not look like a good goaltender. Although he made a couple of big saves for Colorado, their, their path to a cup is all about their offense. It's plain and simple. Tampa Bay is just so good defensively. And if you think about it, Tampa Bay, they've had the long layoffs in the playoffs between the second round against Florida and the New York Rangers. I mean, they got pounced in game one because they had that nine day layoff. And that's kind of what happened for this one. Also, they didn't have the longer layoff. Colorado did. But Colorado is always a prepared team. But when it comes down to it, Andre Vasilevsky is the end all be all for a successful cup run. That's how Tampa has created this stretch of winning hockey. Marty Brodeur just put him on his Mount Rushmore of goaltenders in the National Hockey League and said, I'm going to be looking over my shoulder in terms of wins at the end of his career. I think at the end of the day, my opinion was Tampa's going to win this in six. I still feel like Tampa will win this in six. Colorado just showcased that they're going to make a game of it. But let's not also overlook the fact that Colorado was up 3 nothing. Tampa tied it up, forced overtime, and one bad play in their own zone costed the Lightning a uh, one nothing series lead. Yeah, to your point on game one for them, it's been a struggle for Tampa Bay. They have been outscored in those games 16-9 to combined in their four series that they've played so far. The only game that they won in game one was against Florida, in which they won 4-1. to Otherwise, 6-2 against New York, 5 to nothing. Uh, they, they got shut out on the road against Toronto. And then of course, last night lose four to three in overtime against Colorado. I don't think what, whatever your opinion was of this series going into it. I think you probably still feel that way right now. I I tend to agree with you, Alex. Like I had the lightning winning this in seven. I think it is going to be a really close series from start to finish. I still feel that way. I think that the Avs showed last night why they're going to be able to keep this thing tight because of their offense. They've got so much firepower, man. And to see them doing this right now without Nazem Kadri is pretty Incredible, honestly. It shows you what their depth is uh, that they have available to them as well. And you saw last night, like Miko Rantanen started to get involved offensively a little bit more again. And uh, that that's really impressive. But you also saw the ability of Tampa Bay to come back regardless of what the score is. I, I thought they were going to potentially win that thing. And, and to be able to do that on the road, game one, that's that's pretty impressive. So I still feel the way right now that I did going into the series. Vasilevsky had a tough first period and then he got locked in and they had a bad turnover in their own zone. That's how you lose it. But I I don't think that last night really changed anything about the way that I feel about that series. But you mentioned the goalie and the goaltending in this series. That's going to be one of the reasons why if you're going into next year, 
optimistic about the Blues, and I think you should be, what you saw in the playoffs from Jordan Bennington, especially what you saw from him against Colorado, is a big part of why you'll be optimistic about this team. Because he has shown he can win you games in the playoffs against the best of the best. The question is, in the regular season, who's going to split that workload with him? Because we have now seen now, Alex, I, I think he's like a... 50 game starter in the regular season. And that's not a knock against Bennington? Jordan Bennington. That's just, that's all. That's most goalies, honestly, around the NHL. Yeah, unless you're Vasilevsky or uh, somebody who, Browski, who they just overwork because they're paying him to do that. Carey Price is the other one. Absolutely. You're going to need a good backup goalie going into next year. And Charlie Lindgren won game seven last night for the Springfield Thunderbirds. They're going to go to the Calder Cup now playing against Chicago. So it's the current Blues affiliate versus <laughs> the former Blues affiliate in Chicago. Jeremy Rutherford was on with Carriker and Smallman earlier today. Here's what he had to say about what he thinks the Blues backup goalie situation will be going into the offseason. But what about Charlie Lindgren? I mean, Chucky Sideburns, he's been, <laughs> he's been great. Like uh, he leads Springfield to that Game 7 win last night. Now they're in the Calder Cup Finals. Uh, he's had a tremendous season. You know, I would like to sit here and tell you that he could be the backup uh, and he could get the job done. Can he play 20, 30 games? Can he push Jordan Bennington? I think those are the bigger questions that Doug Armstrong is going to have to ask. And with Joel Hofer, I like him and he's got plenty of upside. I just think he's a little bit raw. We don't usually see goaltenders until... 23, 24, 25, and he's still in his early 20s. So I, I think that he's a couple years uh, off. I think he needs more uh, American Hockey League games. I think this is the only answer. Now, I brought up a couple of backup goaltenders on a Ferrari 05 while you were out, T-Bone. I had like six of them while you were gone, so sorry you missed sucks. them. They were all terrible. Oh. Every single one of them was awful. Oh, he's like the Chad Johnson that we were <laughs> yes. trying to bring in. No, not Chad Johnson. The goaltenders were terrible. Uh, Martin Jones was one of the guys on that list, and you're hoping. The the only answer, in my opinion, is Charlie Deming was number two. Spicy <laughs> pork tenderloin, huh? Oh my god! You want to get some spicy the pork? Was on the it. I don't think he's played in the NHL in like ten no, years. He was good last. He was good this year. Oh, Alex Stolick. Yeah, he's terrible. I mean, he made that one he's up. terrible. And then Martin Jones was five. Look, Charlie Lindgren, um, I, I think is the guy that Doug Armstrong's looking at. I would probably put that at a Mister ninety nine percent that Charlie Lindgren will be the Blues backup this year. The numbers speak for himself what he did this season, but don't overlook what he's done in the NHL during his time with the Montreal Canadiens. Did not get a whole lot of opportunities. I think the most he played in a season was 14 games in the 17-18 season, which that was the season that Carey Price missed a little significant time. But like the guy has had very respectable numbers in the National Hockey League. And then in the AHL, He's been a number one goaltender. I mean, he has led this Springfield Thunderbirds team, he and Joel Hofer, to this Calder Cup solely off of their goaltending. He picked up a shutout in Game 7 victory. I think this guy matches what you want. It's a guy who's been looking for his opportunity. He's played over 100 games in the American Hockey League, and he's already familiar with the team. I always go back to the quote from Robert Bortuzzo when Lindgren went on that five-game win streak, and he said he's just a guy that ignites excitement into a locker room. Charlie Lindgren, and this is the perfect scenario because he's familiar with the organization. He's won a cup, hopefully, with the American Hockey League team. And the guy who is his protege, so to speak, in the AHL, Joel Hofer, well, then he gets to become the number one goaltender. Joel Hofer is too early, I think, to bring him to be in the backup goaltender because you do need 30 to 35 games from your backup. I think Charlie Lindgren can put up very similar numbers to a Ville Husso as a Blues backup next season. I do want to spend a little bit of time on Joel Hofer because I think everybody agrees. Charlie Lindgren, by the way, he's going to be joining us tomorrow on the show. Very excited to talk to Chuck Sideburns tomorrow Shameless here on BK plug. and Ferrario. 
Joel Hofer in the AHL playoffs has actually started more games than Charlie Lindgren. He has started eight of their games in the playoffs. He has a shutout. He has better numbers in those games than Charlie Lindgren does. Remember, there was a span where Lindgren was up with the Blues. No, I understand, but it's been really impressive to watch what he's Mm -hmm. doing right now. He's a 950 save percentage in the AHL playoffs, does Joel Hofer. He's 21 years old. He's still unbelievably young for a goalie prospect. I don't think he is going to be the guy that ends up winning the job coming out. I would be surprised by that. I do think that you're going to see Joel Hofer make starts for the Blues next year, though. I think he's going to work his way into that mix because you always have a period of time where maybe Charlie Lindgren goes through some struggles and you kind of swap those two and you get a 10-game stretch where that's the case. Charlie Lindgren gets it right and then he comes back up. I think you'll see that at some point next year. And I do think Joel Hofer will eventually be that guy. That starts 30 goal, thirty games for you for the NHL club. I don't think it's next year. I think we're not that far away from it, though. I, I thought we would be further than this right now with a guy that's 21 years old. Yeah, I mean, like JR said, it's rare to see guys as young goaltenders make it to the NHL that quickly. Like Ville Husso, of course, you know, he didn't make the NHL until last season, and he was 26, 27 years old. Jake Allen was around the 24, 25 range, but... I mean, when you got a guy who's got elite skills and a guy who looks like he can be a legitimate number one goaltender, that's why they drafted this Joel Hofer. And by the way, the dude's like six foot five. Like it's it, it's it feels a little like Ben Bishop when he was coming Ooh. up through the minors for the Blues. Not trying to make a comp. Ben Bishop but again? We all know how I go with comps here, but this is going to be fascinating because I don't know. I like I, that. I don't think he will be their backup. I do agree he will make some starts. I mean, heck, he picked up a victory for the Blues earlier this season. But I think this is the next step in him making it to the NHL to where he was splitting time with Charlie Lindgren in the AHL. And next season will be, okay, you're the number one guy. And if you can make it through an entire season health-wise, if you can continue to carry that workload and be a number one guy... That's the one thing Vili Husso wasn't able to accomplish in the AHL. He dealt with injuries. He was going back and forth with a couple of different goaltenders. If Joel Hofer can take that reins, I mean, I think in all reality, you could be saying in the 2023-24 season, he could be fighting for the backup spot with Jordan Bennington. I think he is where Jake Allen was in 2012. Jake Allen in 2012 was 22 years old that year. And what ended up happening is he got some opportunities with Brian Elliott and Halak as as your two goalies whenever they, they were out. Yeah, that Jake was when Allen they traded took, away Ben Bishop. He, he got some opportunities that year. He was fine. G- he gave you a nine nine oh five save percentage, two and a half goals against per, per game. And then he took a little bit more time down to the AHL and then became a, a regular starter for you at the age of 24 in 2014. So I, I think that's kind of the, the path that I'm expecting out of a Joel Hofer. The other thing, too, and I, I know people don't like this, this is a player that a lot of teams would be saying, we want him in a trade. You want a he might have some value for you now. You want a Chikrin, you want a Matthew Kachuk. This is a guy that teams would be saying, okay, we want him. But that's where you have to weigh the, okay, is it worth giving up a guy who potentially could be a number one goaltender because somebody already said, Alex said at 1235, Joel Hofer is going to be Ben Bishop. Maybe, maybe not. I'll say this, though. The numbers look very similar, if not better, than what Ben Bishop did in the American Hockey League. Right now, write it down, Tanner. Uh, at twelve thirty-seven, Alex, says Alex Ferrario says that Joel Hofer is the next Ben Bishop. Post that on Twitter after the show. Coming yeah. up in fifteen minutes, we'll dive into I'll the junk drawer. I'll back it. <laughs> but next, T-Bone three, the three storylines that he right, missed while he was out. We'll talk about it next year on one hundred and one ESPN. 
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Taylor Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's time for my favorite time of the week. I've been waiting so long for this. Are you trying to be hurtful? Yeah. Tanner was gone for like three weeks. Felt like it. He missed a lot while he was out. Felt like a BK vacation. I need to hear that's hurtful. Okay, some that's too Tanner terrible takes. So T Bone, hit your open. T Bone. T Bone. T Bone. A little long. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) The three stories I wish I was here to talk about, but we got to get the honorable mentions because we got to get up to five, so we need two of them. How about Carlson and O'Neal coming back? We've talked about it. I love seeing the lineup. I texted you guys last night. What would we have said if Carlson and O'Neal were hitting sixth and seventh in the Cardinals lineup at the beginning of the year? Oh, baby, let's go. I they probably found you. some under-the-radar superstars. I wouldn't <laughs> have been thinking that. I was going to think the polar opposite of, my God, this team is awful. Exactly. And then the other one for me, you guys had Buster only. I think it was either the first or second day that I was out on and him comparing Ali Marmold to Alex Cora and Kevin Cash. Oh, it just hits me in the feels. Whoa. So Careful, it, had, man. it didn't make the top you three. You to make that noise on the radio? Oh. Get all horned up for a T-bone three. Yeah. That, Whoa. Whoa. I knew you were allowed to say that. No, you can say it. Paul Bissonette said it on television. It's fine. Number three, though, this yeah, one cable, really hit man. me. It's the same thing. This one hit this me the cable in of the radio field. shows. <laughs> this hit me in the feels. Number three. Ali Marmol, Alex texted it to us in the group chat while I was on vacation. Wait, Brandon you, how did you Donovan? get to number three? What? Oh, the, the manager with the Cora thing. Sorry. Yeah, yeah that I'm was sorry. honorable mention. I, I thought you combined two of them. I'm like, I, what? No, no, no. This is number three. Brendan Donovan getting the comp to Matt Carpenter. Had him in the T-Bone three back, and I think it was September of last year. Honestly, did not see this coming from Brendan Donovan. Having the ability to have the plate discipline of a Matt Carpenter. I thought all along he was a Daniel Descalzo slash Greg Garcia. <laughs> Maybe with a little bit of pop like a Raphael for a call. He's been way better than I anticipated. And seeing the comp to Matt Carpenter got me excited. He does need the salsa or the mustache to play well. <laughs> no, he He's doesn't. got the flow and a helmet flow. that doesn't fit. He so. doesn't need the mustache or the salsa because that just that, that trends towards a BKO. We don't need it. Guys, he's only played 44 games, so his projections only go up to 110. Someone texted in earlier and said, why, why have Brendan Donovan in the lineup if he's going to commit errors like that? Oh, come uh, on. Because he's hitting above 350, that's why. Yeah, he's got the best on base percentage in the National League. I think I'll that probably has a little something to do with it. So if you put him on like a 162 game pace right now with what he has done, he is on pace for 50 doubles this wow. season. That's <laughs> Matt Carpenter. And he's on pace to walk 77 times and strike out 74 times. He's absurd. This is the most ridiculous thing what we're watching right now. And the best part is, is he moves around the infield like Marp did, except he's a lot better defensively than it. what Marp was. Uh, number two on the list, the next two here have basically happened in the last couple of days. 
It's Goldie getting into number one on the MVP voting. Man, I love watching Goldie play. That doubleheader, six for eight, three home runs, eight RBIs. While I was on vacation, just casually hitting 347, or excuse me, 375 with four home runs and nine RBIs. He's just been incredible. It's fun to watch him. I try to go back and watch some of his at-bats from the time that I miss. And when you have a stat line in a couple of days where it dates back all the way to Ty Cobb, that's unbelievable, and I loved watching Goldie play. Did you end up I'm putting as, down your uh, your bet on yeah. Goldie to win MVP? I did not. I, no. This is why I'm not I as excited about it. I put it on Arenado. Yeah, I put it on Arenado. Arenado immediately win. kind of cooled <laughs> off after I did it, so I'm not touching I'm not the Goldie bet. I'm not mentioning the fact that I also put down a bet on yeah. Nolan Arenado. I'm not mentioning the fact that I also put money down on Nolan Arenado. <laughs> this bleeping show, man. Usually I don't have that effect, but I guess it's because you guys did it and I'll take I jumped on board on with that bandwagon. Well, it's totally BK. Hey, we, we had to sacrifice our well, Anato. No. How'd Flaherty do last night when you sent our text? He was fine. Okay. Fine. Number one, though, on the list, I watched this game while I was at the Texas Rangers game. Well, that seems person. like a poor fan. It's, well, you know, it was the Miles Michaelis near no hitter. I, the, I made it a bold prediction heading into the season on Miles Michaelis saying he was going to lead the team in wins and he's going to have a, I think I said a sub three, five ERA is what I think I said. And I think he said, I said he's going to cover 170 innings pitch. The two outings he had while I'm on vacation an eight innings, one run allowed, and he gets a loss complete game. (laughs) And then an eight and two thirds, one hitter that got interrupted with two strikes. He was one strike away from a near no hitter. Miles Michaelis was unfreaking believable while I was out on vacation. And I wish I could have witnessed both games and watched them completely. I only caught the last two innings in that near no hitter. Didn't watch any of that game against the Tampa Bay Rays. Went back and saw the highlights. Hold on, you only caught the final two innings of the near no hitter? Yeah. Yeah, And what what happened in the final two innings of that near no hitter? Well, BK tweeted out in the fifth, so it's his fault, (laughs) not mine. You were closer to the hit. Yeah. It's true, but still. I wish I was here to watch both of those outings from Miles Michaelis come on the air the next day and just geek out about it. He's been unbelievable, and he's making me look good from another team on three. That's why Miles Michaelis near no hitter and just his performance is number one. So this is what the T-Bone 3 is now, just bragging about yourself? Yeah, there's I no am. there's no research I like it. that goes into oh, it or the, insight? Because the Ferrari 05 isn't bragging about <laughs> other I'm, Ferrari 05s. I'm, no, no, no. That is what you guys do after the Ferrari 05 is successful. I never brag. On Tanner's point, Schneider. which was a really good one about Miles oh, Michaelis. You're, you guys are trying to be hurtful here. Oh, yeah, well, but you saying there's no insight to the T-Bone 3. Well, there wasn't. isn't. Hey, hey, hey. There isn't. Calm down, boys. We'll if I told you, you coming into the season... That in the first 60 games of the year, 65 games, Miles Michaelis, Adam Wainwright, and Dakota Hudson would each have 12 to 13 starts, and they their ERAs would be a respective 2.6, 2.8, and 3.29. What would you have said? Because I would have been like, oh my God, the Cardinals, everything is working. <laughs> that is, if I had known before the season that this is what those three were going to be in your rotation... It's kind of wild that every day we have conversations about the rotation and how they need to add another starter when that's what those top three guys are doing for you so far. And they're about to add, well, they kind of did last night, add Jack Flaherty to the mix. I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's just kind of crazy that if you had told us before the season, all of us, I think, would have hit the button to sign up for those three guys performing like that. Yeah, I don't even think it's, I mean, talking about going out there to add another pitcher when you got those guys performing, it seems strange, but it also is because 
there's really no weak spots on this team, which I think leads you to the fact of, okay, well, if we're going to strengthen an area, let's strengthen the starting pitching rotation and just add on to an already strength. And that's where it comes in because your rotation is set with what those three are performing with. And then on top of it, that's going to shift guys into the bullpen. You've seen the depth that's there, and there's really no point in going out there to add a bat because you don't know where the hell those guys are playing. So that's why it seems to always go back to the rotation. But I said it yesterday, like Michaelis was the one with the exception of T-Bone that I came into the season. And I think a lot of people came into the season thinking, well, he's not going to be anything effective for this team because he hasn't been for the last three years. And then boom, the guy comes out and looks like he's going to fight for a Cy Young award. Can I give you guys a name that might be the the pitcher that they add, by the way? Oh, boy. It ain't sexy. I'm not going to pretend that it is. But let's go over to the Oakland A's. It's Frankie Montas. Just keep your mouth shut. He's thrown. He's he's started 12 games for them. He's thrown 66 innings so far this year. This gentleman. Because nobody else can start games for him. He's got a (laughs) 2.3 ERA. Now, he doesn't walk anybody. That's good. He also doesn't strike out anybody. That's not ideal. He gets a ton of ground balls. He's at a 51% ground ball rate so far this year. Opposing hitters are batting 214 against them. Like I said, doesn't walk anybody. So their on base percentage is only 265 against this player this year. But he's 28 years old. He's never really had any sort of success in his in his career before this year. He previously had a 5.8 ERA in his major league career. I'll pass. Yeah, I'll pass. His name's Paul Blackburn. Yeah, we'll stay away from that. He was a former first round pick by the Chicago Cubs back in 2012. And this is the first time that he's really had any sort of sustained success. I think this guy might actually be worth a look. I wouldn't trade much for him because, like I said, there's really no track record of him having this kind of success before. But if the Cardinals think that it's going to be longer than anticipated with Steven Matz and they do want to plug somebody into that fifth spot, somebody like this could actually make some sense for them if they could buy low on him. BK, once again, scraping the bottom of the barrel for acquisitions, not looking for the big-time names. I mean, it's the Cardinals. You want me to be realistic or you want me to be exciting? I want you to be exciting. Coming up in 10 minutes, we'll talk to you about Jeff Albert, who's been super oh, exciting for the Cardinals this year. Not exciting. But next, let's dive into the junk drawer here on ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Together Credit Union. Pay yourself with every purchase. Open and achieve it. Checking account today. Into the junk drawer, we got to talk about Alex Ferrario dunking on his daughter yesterday, or dunking slam her. dunking like Shaquille Hello, O'Neal. Sir. Take it, slam dunked on a 15 month old. That's what's up. What'd you do, man? That is your level. I have anxiety. Yeah, yeah me too, buddy. Yeah. Well, yeah. tell me about it. My, <laughs> mine's with a child. So last Friday, we started swim lessons with Adelaide, and mind you, she's 15 months old. But like they say that, you know, around this time is when you put her in the water and try and get her used to being dunked so that they can start to learn to the everything that goes into swim lessons. And so I took her to the swim lesson class, and I already had anxiety because it's like, I don't know what I'm doing in this. Like we joined mid-season of the lessons for the swim class, and so took her into the pool we started the class and you know they do like that you're walking around in motion just to get them used to the water and smacking it around and she was okay but then we get to the point where everyone starts dunking their kids and there were four other parents with us and again these guys might have already been in the classes so they knew what they were going through i just jumped mid and all of a sudden they're like okay now dunk her i'm like what and 
everyone around me just literally picked up their child who was somewhere <laughs> between eight months and 15 months years old and just dunked them in the water face first. And I'm looking around and going, no. And so they do these like little like, I don't know, warm ups where you swish them around and then you dunk them on three. And the first time I dunked my daughter to about the shoulders. Second time I dunked my daughter to about the chin. And the trainer, the teacher finally looked over at me and just kind of gave me the like, hey, stop effing around eyes. And like, all right, fine. And so the third time I like literally dunked my child in the water and I felt awful. I felt like I just abused my child. Now she came up and was laughing and having a great time, but I I hated it so much. And so now I have more anxiety because I don't want to go back to this. I was going to say, don't you have to do this again? I got to do it every Friday for like the next eight <laughs> weeks. And I'm, I am so, I told Katie last night, I said, I'm don't not going to sleep tonight because I have anxiety again why, tomorrow. Why are you afraid of it? Though? I don't know. Because, because that's like part of the, you've got to allow, it's the thing with kid. Man, I'm not a parent. I was going to so say I, dad lessons with BK right now. Let's go. From what I understand. You need advice for me too? Oh, wait, no, you're married. You do a lot You're of swiping lucky. left on the stabbing yeah, yeah, wagon and the yeah. station wagon over whoa, the weekend. Whoa, careful there. That's uh, what it's called. It's the, like, you got to let the kid touch the stove to be able to find out that it's too hot to be able to touch it again, right? Oh. That, that whole idea. Or I just make sure that they don't touch the oven, but go on. Well, the stove totally yeah, different so Are you're you gonna say like when you have your kid you're gonna, gonna take like, your yeah, container put it on in the oven and say no, no don't but do you that gotta, again you gotta allow them to make their mistakes or in this instance you gotta you, you gotta, gotta dump them in the, the pool <laughs> you gotta throw them in the pool so and find to, out if they sink or swim i have to forcibly they swink you go get them i have to forcibly approach the the drowning my child yeah no, no, you're not holding her down there it's just a dunk bring her right back up <laughs> well that's the thing though and like i i apparently so my sister did this like a baptism Right well, the no, the baptisms usually they just pour water on Close. the top of their heads. Not fully in. Oh, it depends which. I guess that's true. That's true. Uh, so my sister did this though with my nieces, and apparently, like part of the class is like you're supposed to blow in their face when you put them under, so they hold their breath. So like when you blow into oh. little kid's face, they're like, <gasps> and then you dunk them. Yeah, I wasn't told that, and so like I, I didn't see anybody blowing in their kids' faces, but I was legitimately just dunking my daughter, eyes open, water up the nose, in the mouth, child. Um, so I have no idea if I'm doing this right. She looked like she had a fun time. Um, How but, long uh, are the uh, thirty the minutes? Lessons? Thirty minutes. No, weeks. Oh, it's uh, so you re up every four weeks. So it's once a month or four times a month, and then you re up at the end of the month for the next month. And Katie wants to do two months of it, and I'm like, yeah, I'm okay because like we have a pool in our backyard, and sure. so we're gonna take her swimming. And I want her to not I'm be no afraid one, of That's the, the water. Peloton money though. Well, chill. It's in an above ground pool in High Ridge, and we bought the house with it. It's not like I installed an in ground uh, pool, but like I don't want her to be afraid to have of an outdoor kitchen here within the next couple of weeks. My biggest expense was I just bought an Ethernet cable, so uh, (laughs) see where we're uh, living here. BK's got a Peloton. I've got an above ground I've pool. I've got a really long Ethernet now. Tebow's got an Ethernet. Someone said, make your wife take her next time. Well, that would be easy if my wife wasn't eight months pregnant right now. <laughs> so I'm I'm the uh, I'm the fall guy with that. Uh, Tanner's going to show up tomorrow, and he's going to be like, guys, hey guys I got, I got these things. They call them bunny ears. I set them on top of my TV, and I can watch TV now. <laughs>
with my Ethernet cable. Yeah, see, someone say you blow right across the bridge of their nose. She'll shut her eyes and take a small breath and makes you feel better about dropping them in the water. I didn't know that until four wait, dunks wait, in. Are my you dunking was... or are you dropping? I've seen a lot of people just say, like, drop the kid in the no, water. No, no, no. You, you hold her underneath her armpits and, like... And just lower her. Yeah, they got, like, a got song you. that you lead up to it and you count to three and then on three you dunk them so they can anticipate it. And, like, the first time it was just pure shock. Like, the face was... The F did you just do to me? <laughs> and then the second and third time, she was smiling with it. But, like, again, I, was I supposed to blow in her face? Was she supposed to hold her breath? I don't know. All I know is I felt like I was drowning my child for 30 minutes. 65780 is the air comfort service text line. The 573. All I can see now is BK flipping soy burgers in his new outdoor kitchen outside of Alex's house. No, he's done a lot at my house with those soy burgers. Coming up in 10 minutes, we'll play a game of Believe It or Not. Someone said her being eight months pregnant is also your fault, Alex. Everything is your fault. I mean, that's true. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. If you've got a scenario, we'll tell you if you're believing it or not coming up in 15 minutes. But next, add Jeff Albert Appreciation Day. That's a bad idea, man. We'll do it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It's here. Hammer deep to left field. Jordan Walker ends this ball game. Long gone to left. A two-run home run. 432 feet away. And Jordan Walker has his first walk-off bomb in double-A. 10-8, the Cardinals win it. 109 off the bat, 432. It cleared everything in left field. Jeff Albert is a bit of a punching bag here in St. Louis, but we're going to give him his credit today here on BK and Ferrario. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. That's what it sounded like last night as Jordan Walker, one of the top prospects in all of baseball, and probably right now, I don't he's not necessarily rated this way, but probably the top prospect in the Cardinals system, uh, had a walk-off home run, his first down in double-A. He is tearing the cover off of the ball right now for double-A Springfield Cardinals. Cardinals. He's batting 315 with a 925 OPS for Springfield. Mason Wynn, another one of the Cardinals' top five prospects, a shortstop. He's batting 295 in double A. He's got an 860 OPS for them. You go up to the triple A level, some of the Cardinals' top prospects there. Alec Burleson batting 365 on the season with a 950 OPS. Yvonne Herrera, who was not hitting all of that well. Last year, I believe it was. This year he's batting 290 in AAA with an 825 OPS. All of the Cardinals' top prospects, and that is that's not even to speak of their reclamation project in Moises Gomez, who's batting 330 right now in Double A with a 1200 OPS. Okay, guys, all of them are hitting right now. You look at the big league club, the Cardinals right now in terms of OPS plus, which is on a scale of 100, and anything above that is above league average. They're ninth in Major League Baseball, ahead of the Phillies, who sold out completely this offseason to hit the ball as hard as they possibly could. They're ahead of teams like San Francisco and Boston and L.A., uh, the San Diego Padres, Tampa Bay Rays. They've been pretty good offensively so far this year. Is it time we give for A, what they're doing in the major leagues, and also B, what we're seeing their top prospects producing in the minors, and we know Jeff Albert is in charge of their in, their entire organizational hitting approach is it time to give him the credit for the amount of success that we are watching some of these prospects having right now? 
Yes and no. And welcome to sitting on the fence. We haven't done this in a while on BK and Ferrario, but yes, you deserve to give credit to him because this is the hitting approach throughout their organization, specifically in the minor leagues. And look at the success. It doesn't even bring into conversation to Brendan Donovan, who came out of nowhere and was hitting for you. But on the flip side of that, when things are going south, we don't put blame on Jeff Albert. And I, I never know how to approach the hitting coach side of things because it's like when they're hitting well, you go to the hitting coach. When they're not hitting well, you go to the hitting coach or then you try and take it away from the hitting coach. And the most recent example I can come up with is when we talked to Eduardo Perez a couple of weeks ago. He was a hitting coach and he said, like, yes, the preparation and the mental work comes from the hitting coach side. But at the end of the day, those players have to go out and put it to work. They have to showcase what they've been working for off the field. So to see Jordan Walker perform, to go through the list of names that you mentioned, yeah, I think you have to bring Jeff Albert's name into consideration because he's making sure that his approach and the coaching staff underneath him are prepared to work with these players. But on the flip side of that, some of this is also, these are just really good prospects that Randy Flores and the Cardinals found through the draft. Yeah, that's a good point. This is part of the, just the Cardinals finding these good players that they have drafted and been able to develop. But I do think it is time to give Jeff Albert some credit because, you know, you look at his philosophy. It's basically, you know, hit the ball really hard and find your pitch. And and, and you look at the Cardinals, and we talk about the major league level a lot, and you, he's always that fallback option for fans. And sometimes us, when we're looking at the offense, it's, well, it's got to be Jeff Albert. He's not helping these guys make these in-game adjustments. But you look at Tyler O'Neill, Dylan Carlson, and uh, Paul DeYoung, Harrison Bader. Those were like the four guys you were kind of judging him on, I believe, last year. You saw Tyler O'Neill. He can play at an MVP caliber level. Dylan Carlson's never going to really be that guy that hits the ball extremely hard, but he just has a great plate approach. And you look at Paul DeYoung, I just don't know if Paul DeYoung was fixable, but Harrison Bader does the same thing. He hits the ball really hard, waits for his pitch, makes solid contact. And then you look at the minor league guys, and you're starting to see them make their way to the minor or to the major league level, and they've developed through the Jeff Albert system. I mean, Nolan Gorman's like the prodigy child when people talk about Jeff Albert's philosophy, the just hit the ball really hard. I mean, Nolan Gorman's hitting the ball extremely hard he's one of those that's in the top uh, percentile in major league baseball jordan walker is going to be the same way that's the kind of player he is but the one that goes under the radar that we talk about and you brought this up in the office before before the show bk is that get the pitch that you want to hit and if you don't get it then don't swing at it don't chase and that's what brendan donovan is people aren't going to give jeff albert the credit that he deserves i don't want to say deserves but people aren't going to give jeff albert the credit of develop the helping development of a brendan donovan because they won't say well donovan he just hits the ball over the place he's just an all-around good baseball player but part of that is because donovan is looking for that one pitch that he wants to attack and if he doesn't get it donovan's not going to chase donovan's more than willing to walk and get on base and you're kind of seeing a guy like tommy edmund kind of develop that what was the one thing that we had on top or the one critique we had of tommy edmund coming in the year and as a leadoff hitter it was he didn't walk enough he's raised his walk rate this season He's learning the approach of, okay, if I don't see the pitch that I'm looking for, I'm not going to I'm not going to chase. I'm not going to swing at it. And does that mean maybe I may go down on strikes? Sure. But it may also lead to me increasing my walk rate and getting on base at a higher clip. And you're seeing that across the system for the Cardinals with guys like Brendan Donovan, Juan Yepes, who has a very good plate approach. And you're also seeing the just hit the ball extremely hard, get that barrel percentage launch angle in Nolan Gorman and Jordan Walker. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service X line from the 636. BK, calm down. The Cardinals don't have a murderer's row lineup right now. Jeff Albert sucks. No one exceeds expectations under his coaching, just like you don't exceed expectations hosting a radio show. Whoa. <laughs> Believe it. Text line hasn't changed since I was gone. <laughs> yeah, it's still the it's same, It's actually buddy. gotten worse. Oh, um, my. I, listen, like, 
I'm not trying to pretend that Jeff Albert is like this godsend of a coach. I, but I think his philosophy is pretty simple. Like Katie Luzzi's explained this to us after she's talked with Jeff Albert. We've heard him explain it. We've talked to Ollie Marmol about it. Like his hitting philosophy is very simple. And this is the organizational philosophy. I was reading something with Tiger Peterson, Jock Peterson's brother, who's a hitting coach for the Cardinals down in the minor leagues. Tiger? It's Tiger. T-Y-G-E-R. Um, That's amazing. And he talked, I think it was with Baseball America, about kind of what their organizational philosophy is. And he he rehashed what we've talked about. You find a good pitch to hit, and you hit it as hard as you can. And that sounds so simple, but, guys, that's what it's supposed to be. Hitting is not supposed to be you're going up there, and you've got all of these million different thoughts that go through your head. And, of course, there's more to it. Like, you, you they'll think about, okay, what is this guy's arsenal? What's the spin rate that he's got? What of that arsenal is something that I can take advantage of? And where is that when it crosses the plate? And all of these different things go into it, and your mechanics and all of these different things. But at its core, the philosophy is very simple. Find your pitch to hit and hit it hard. And the Cardinals are doing a really good job of that right now, both at the major league level, which is what he's working with on a day-to-day basis, but also with the guys that they have hired to be within their minor league system to make sure they get the most out of whomever it is, whether it's a top prospect like they had with Nolan Gorman or an under-the-radar guy that just seems to latch on and it works for him like a Brendan Donovan or maybe somebody who was in somebody else's minor league system that comes over and over the years they start to develop like a Juan Yepes and now you see it happening again and it's if it happens at multiple levels with multiple different players I've got to start paying attention to it because Jordan Walker what he's doing right now maybe this was just going to happen no matter what because he's an otherworldly gifted athlete that's possible but what he's doing right now is amazing Mason Wynn was a pitcher like two years ago man And he's hitting 300 right now down in the minor leagues. And there were legit questions about whether or not his bat would come around. I've got to give some credit to the hitting staff. Whether you want to give that to Albert or the guys that are in the minor leagues, I don't care, honestly. But there's got to be some credit that is given to them. And then you look look at a Moises Gomez, for example. The Cardinals fixed him. I don't know how. I don't know exactly what they did. I'd be interested in reading some pieces about that. But there was something that changed for him from the time where he was basically let walk by the Tampa Bay's Rays organization to where he is today, where he leads, I think, the minor leagues in home runs again. You look at what's happening with Alec Burleson. That's a really good job by the Cardinals' minor league development system to get him to where he is. Yvonne Herrera was really struggling at the plate. Now he's fixed that, and he looks really good. So I'm going to give credit where it's due to their organizational philosophy at the plate because it's clearly working for them right now. I really like this text from the 314. It says, I look at Jeff Albert. As a college football coach, you can't judge the system until you find guys that fits the batting approach. I like that. I mean, I think that when you look at the guys in some of them, yes, top prospects, but also guys like Brendan Donovan, Juan Yepes, uh, even for a little bit of Tommy Edmond, like you find guys that match the way that you want to approach the system. And maybe that's why some guys didn't work for the Cardinals that work elsewhere. I know everyone goes back to Randy or Rosarena. Maybe that's why some of those guys didn't work for the Cardinals. And that's why they're working now because the guys match the system. But maybe that's the way to to view hitting approaches moving forward. Somebody else from the 618 says Matt Carpenter said he started to adapt to some of Jeff Albert's uh, hitting philosophy over the offseason. And now look what he's doing as well. 
That's the other thing is I think as you get, and we've talked about this before, as you get more of these guys that are younger, that are willing to accept some of those philosophical shifts that have happened, not just in the Cardinals, but this is happening across all of baseball. I think the Giants have seven hitting coaches on their staff right now, or guys that work with the hitting instruction. Overachieving. Because they, they just they want different people to work with different types of learning capabilities. And that's kind of where the game is going. Everybody's got this individualized philosophy within the organizational philosophy I think that's what you're going to see moving forward uh, with the Cardinals as well is they're just trying to adapt their approach to individual guys. Tommy Edmond does not have the same approach at the plate as Paul Goldschmidt. Paul Goldschmidt doesn't have not have the same approach at the plate as Harrison Bader or Tyler O'Neill. They're all different. But when you boil it down, it's find your pitch and hit it really hard. And that's what they're doing at the big league level right now. And they're also starting to do it at a really high level in the minors, too. So uh, credit to them, credit to the Cardinals for finding ways to adapt these things to multiple different levels and multiple different players. Credit to Jeff Albert, as if we're going to be critical like we were last year, where I thought it was the end of Jeff Albert in St. Louis. I thought it would have been a totally reasonable thing to decide to walk. Both of you go your separate ways. I also have to give him credit when it seems like what he's doing is working. In 15 minutes, we're going to talk to a former NHL assistant GM. What is this time of year like for the front office of the St. Louis Blues? What kinds of uh, possible transactions are they talking about within the organization? What are they preparing for? We'll talk to Chris Gear about that coming up at 1.30. Believe it or not, though, is coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Look at what's happened to me. I can't believe it myself. Suddenly I'm up on top of the world. I'm not going to lie, guys. I did listen to the song this morning. I can't forget the lyrics in the station wagon. Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. I never thought I could feel so free. What just happened to Dude, I think I like to... <laughs> the, the voice popped there a little bit towards the end. I, I'm still dealing with something from what I had. A lot of drinking like a for him cold. on the, uh, oh, on yeah, the trip down to I heard. I didn't say not a lot of alcohol. 65780 yeah. is your comfort <laughs> service text line. From the 636, believe it or not, BK secretly likes all the food and drink stuff that he claims not to like on the air. What are they referencing here? You're talking about like... Juices and stuff because I actually no, do like that. Like Otherwise, I wouldn't. Does <laughs> eat a lot them. of soy. He puts soy milk in his <laughs> coffee at the Blues that's game. The part that, no, it was oat milk. Oh, that's totally different. No, it wasn't just soy milk. Yeah, it was soy milk. Six five seven eight zero is here. Comfort service next line. They don't have oat milk like, at the I Blues game. I can promise you that because nobody drinks it other than you. Believe Beta it or boy. not. Oh, T Bone just saw this storyline, Alex. Elliot Friedman, according to uh, a Nashville sports radio station, one zero two five, the game. Apparently, Elliot Friedman told them that it's going to be a, quote, wild NHL offseason with plenty of trades coming league-wide, end quote. Do you think that the Blues will be a part of that with a significant trade? Believe it or not. I believe it. I think a lot of teams are going to be trying to make moves and make decisions regarding where they're at in the divisions and things like that. Arizona, they're going to try and take advantage of a draft either this year or next year. Some other teams, Boston might not be able to get Pasternak locked up. Calgary, who knows what happens with Johnny Goudreau. I saw a report earlier that said Goudreau's looking for a eight-year deal worth about $10.5 million Damn. per year. That's going to take them out of the Matthew Kachuk running if you lock up Johnny Goudreau. So I'm going to believe this. I think some type of trade takes place for the Blues 
and I think it's going to be a significant one. I'll believe this as well. I, I can see the Blues making a trade in the offseason, whether it be something for a Chikrin or a Kachuk. Or honestly, I could even see them getting involved. Maybe it's a hockey deal. Maybe it is they do move Vladimir Tarasenko, and they get a salary back in return just in that slot, or they just move him to get some assets in return, and then it goes into making another big trade in the offseason. So I would not be stunned to see the Blues involved in making some trades and being involved in this kind of carousel of the NHL offseason. I'm calling out our guy, David Panyota. Oh, I think he's wrong. That. He's easy to get on. I like David Panyota. I think he does really good work. I think he's wrong about what it's going to take to acquire Jacob Chikrin. I mentioned earlier today when we talked to him, a first Perunovic and Ivan Barbashev, which is a pretty darn good package. Maybe you have to include another pick in there or something. I think that's the kind of deal that you're going to be looking at. I don't know if it's a Matthew Kachuk. I don't think it's going to be a David Posternock. I do think that what you're going to see is a Jacob Chikrin or somebody equivalent to that that ends up coming to the Blues because they're not going to pay the price that it's going to require to sign one of the top left-handed defensemen. It's overpaying for an above-average player. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for Believe It or Not from the 636. Believe it or not, Ali Marmel is the perfect fit for the Cardinals, and he will be the Cardinals manager for over a decade. Damn. Decade. Going a decade after half of a season. How um, many guys, how many managers do you guys think have been with their current teams for at least a decade? Any guesses? I want to say Roberts and Cora. I don't know if they've. I don't know if it's been Cora, a decade because no, he got fired and brought back. Roberts Kevin, was 2015 is when he was hired. Is what Kevin about Cash, Cash there? Yeah, I don't think he's he been was there hired in 2014. I don't know if there's any. I, I would say there might not be any. I don't think there's one. Aaron Boone, Terry Francona hired in 2012. He's still there. So this is his yeah. 10th year in Cleveland. Uh, Aaron Boone was 2017. The longest tenured current National League manager is Cora. Well, you just said Francona. Is, is it Brian Price? It is Craig Council. Oh, Craig Council has been Central. with that the Milwaukee Brewers since 2015. Other than that, it's Don Mattingly with the Marlins, <laughs> Dave Roberts with the Dodgers, and Brian Snitker with the Braves. How All have is, been with their team for about five, six years. How long has Price been there? Uh, Price? Are you talking about in the, Who? Brian Price Wait, isn't with Cincinnati anymore. No, no, sorry, not Brian Price. Uh, David Bell, that's who I meant to say. 2018. Yeah, I was going to say, only three years. Wow, or four I feel like years. he's been there a lot longer yeah. than that. No, because didn't he go when Matheny went? Uh, right, yeah, right around that, that season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so t- I, I bring that up to answer this question. Like, I do think that Ollie Marmel is a tremendous manager. I think he's been really good so far for the Cardinals. I think he's a great fit, and also he's really young. So do I think he's got the chance to be able to be here long term? Yeah. It just doesn't happen in baseball. So the the overwhelming likelihood is that he is not here for the next decade. So I'm not going to believe it, but not because I think he's a poor manager. It just That's don't tough. last that long as a manager typically in one spot. Yeah, I, I'm not going to believe it either. Just because, it, like you mentioned, there's only one guy that's done it so far. And honestly, Francona has been viewed as a guy that could have potentially been on the hot seat the last couple of years. So, no, I, I'm not going to believe it. And it's not anything against Ollie. I think it's just it's really hard to coach a team for a decade. I, I bet across all the sports, there's probably only, what, five guys that have been with their current team for a decade. Like Mike Tomlin would fit into that category. Bill Belichick. Belichick. John Harbaugh. Harbaugh. But then, like the NHL, I don't think anybody's been with their team for a decade. The NBA, Steve Kerr's getting close to that, but I don't think he's there. I actually think I'm going to believe this one. I think I might believe this. I think because Dave Roberts is going to get to 
a decade. And I think Cora... He was get, on the hot seat there for a while too, though. Yeah, yeah I think Alex Cora would, would get to a decade, even though he had that time off. Yeah. Uh, here's why I think it actually could work with Ali Marmol, because the next core of guys might already be on this roster or coming up in this system. And like all these other ones, you're transitioning from the the elder group of players to a new one, and you don't know if that's going to work with the manager. This voice from Ali Marmol is going to be there when the Jordan Walkers and the Mason Wins come up. They're going to be there with these young pitching prospects and things like that. I actually think he might be one in the NL Central that lasts. Uh, Last one here. Believe it or not, guys, Albert Pujols will hit 700 home runs this year. Or uh, he will hit his 700th home run. Hit seven home, home, home runs? That would be impressive. He's um, at 683 right now, so he needs 17 more over the course of what, the next basically 100 games? I want yeah. it to happen, man. I just don't know if it will. He's dropped off a little bit here, and if you're only having success against lefties, and now you've got all of these bench options, I, I want to believe this, but I, I think I'm going to have to say no. I'm not going to believe it. Yeah, I, I can't see him getting to 700 this year. I, I'm with Alex. I wish we would get to witness it back here in St. Louis. I, I just can't see it happening. I'm not going to believe this. The funny thing is he's still hitting the ball really hard. Like some of his foul balls that he's hitting this year, I, I know it's a weird stat and a BT makes fun of it with a fip on the fast lane. He's hit some really hard foul balls. I'm not believing this. I do think he gets to like 15 on the season. That would be 11 more, though, and that's not enough to be able to get him to 700. So I'm not believing that he gets to 700 with the Cardinals this year. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're hitting the BK and Ferrario Rewind with what we saw last night from Jack Flaherty and Tanner made a comparison between the Cardinals and a former World Series team. If Jack gets back to form, we'll tell you who that is coming up at 145. But next, Chris Gear is a former NHL assistant general manager. He's going to join us, talk about what this time of year is like for a front office and what the Blues should be expecting to do this offseason. Chris Gear next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. Very happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by the former NHL assistant GM, now analyst for the Daily Faceoff. He's Chris Gear joining us via the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Chris, we appreciate the time as always, man. Thanks so much for joining us today. Wanted to get your insight into what this time of year is like in a front office. So let's start there. What are front offices doing? Like, for example, Doug Armstrong and his his group of advisors, what are they doing this time of the the year as they prepare for the offseason? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, thanks for having me on the show, guys. And I understand that you're having uh, quite a heat wave in Missouri. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> we haven't seen the sun since last August, so if you can send a little bit our way, I think uh, I think we'd be okay. Hey, we'd be fine with yeah, sending you plenty of the sun, <laughs> <Deal>. Chris. <laughs> yeah, we'll do a trade. We'll do a trade. Um, you know what? This, this can be a really busy time of the year. You know, the Blues are in an interesting situation in that they have most of their roster signed for next year. So, you know, apart from David Perron and Nick Letty and then finding a backup goalie if, if indeed Huso moves on, you know, the rest of the team is set if they want to keep it that way. So, you know, in, in the Blues case, they're, Doug Armstrong is just going to be all ears. He's going, to be, he's going to be listening to what other GMs are wanting to do. We know that a lot of teams are going to be in cap trouble, uh, may have to move 
significant pieces from the roster to make things work. Uh, you know, the, the, the Blues have about $9 million. Uh, there's speculation that possibly they could buy out Marco Scandella, which would free up another $2 million. You know, that, that $11 million or so, if they just wanted to spend it on, on Perron, Letty, and a goaltender, that, that chews that up, and then, and then they're there. But, you know, they, they might want to do something a little different. They may want to move some pieces around, try to, try to get themselves in a little better position to compete with the Colorados and Tampas of the world. So it's all about just evaluating and reevaluating your roster and seeing how you can make those tiny tweaks uh, to improve and be that much better next year. Well, Chris, I love the way that you said that there. If he decides that's what he wants to do is run it back. And when you as a former assistant general manager and now as an analyst, when you look at the Central Division and the Western Conference, of course, Colorado is there and Minnesota made strides this season. And then you look at the Edmonton Oilers and the Calgary Flames. Do you feel like running it back for St. Louis from a front office perspective is a good idea if you're chasing a Stanley Cup? Well, I think, I think you always want to get incrementally better. And, you know, some of the teams that you mentioned, I think Minnesota's going to take a step back. They've got those two buyouts uh, that, that come on board with, um, from when they bought out Parise and Suter, and that's going to take a, a huge chunk of their cap space. They may have to give up somebody like Kevin Fiala, which will, will hurt them significantly. Uh, same with Calgary. They've, they've got to try and re-sign Johnny Gaudreau, Andrew Mangiapane, and uh, and one other, uh, Kachuk. So, you know, they, if they can't get all those guys re-signed, they may have to take a step back. Uh, Edmonton maybe can't bring back Evander Kane, and, and their goaltending situation is, is uh, very up, up in arms right now. So, you know, and Colorado, the same thing with Nazem Kadri. Can they afford to bring him back? And then they've got uh, Nathan McKinnon up the next year, which they have to guard against. So, you know, I think all of the teams are, are in a position where they might not be as good next year. And, and so running it back, you know, isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. I mean, the, the Blues had a, a great year. They, they're the only team that, that has beat Colorado in the playoffs so far, and they, they gave them a good run. Um, but I think you do want to get incrementally better and you have to just keep looking at, at ways to do that. If they were going to make any sort of significant move, the thing that we've been looking at, Chris, is their left-handed defenseman and the possibility of going to the trade market to find one because we've looked at the free agent market. And I don't know if you agree with this, Chris. It doesn't seem like there are a ton of great options available there. Like Nick Letty is right up towards the top of that market. If they were to look for trades to have a top-pairing left-handed defenseman with Colton Pareko, are there any names that make sense in your mind that could become available this offseason? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I I agree with you on the first point. The the guys that are available on the left side are really the same names that were available at the deadline. So it's it's Letty, it's uh, Ben Sherratt, it's Brett Kulak. Zadorov. And so you're right. Um, you know, Letty, Letty might be the best of that bunch. He actually was a pretty decent fit in St. Louis, you know, in terms of, in terms of other left-handed D that might be on the market. I mean, you know, there's, there are going to be guys, there's teams looking to move left-handed D. I think right here in Vancouver, there's been speculation that, that maybe they want to move on from Oliver Ekman Larson, just given the cap hit. I mean, he's a, he, he would be an incredible second pairing defenseman. It's just whether the blues want to, take that on i mean looking ahead you've got kairu and thomas who next year will be rfas uh tarasenko and o'reilly are ufas next year you know this is the year to to go for it because next year there's a lot of guys that that are on expiring contracts that you're gonna have to deal with 
So, you know, I, I think taking on another significant contract might not be the way to go. So if you can trade for a guy that's, that's maybe got just one year left on his deal and, and give up some assets to do that, then I think you do that. I haven't, I haven't explored that trade market, uh, you know, precisely enough to, to give you a couple other names, but, but that is definitely uh, something they should be exploring. Chris, the one thing in St. Louis that Doug Armstrong spoke about at the end of the season with his media exit interviews was talking about trying to find an identity for the fourth line. And, you know, we've speculated of names and things like that of internally or going to the free agent market, but big picture from a front office mindset, what's the approach in trying to reshape a fourth line in an off season? Well, you, you definitely want a fourth line with an identity and, you know, th- there are a lot of guys out there. If you look at um, the UFA market, you know, guys like Tyler Mott or, um, you know, I'm trying to think of Colin Blackwell, maybe the guys that guys that won't break the bank that will, you know, give you that, that aggressive forecheck, they'll give you some hitting, they'll give you some, some pesky play, they'll, you know, they're, they're difficult to play against. And I think that's what you want in a fourth line. You want, you want your, your first three lines to have a little bit more freedom to be creative and to try to, you know, try to score the goals. And you want a fourth line that's just going to make life miserable for the opposition. And so, you know, trying to find those guys, whether it's on the UFA market or whether it's, uh, through trade. Um, but, but for me, the key thing with the fourth line is to keep the cost down because that allows you to spend more on, on the stars and maybe on that, that left D spot. Right. So if you, you know, I, I wouldn't want to spend any more than about a million five on anybody on the fourth line. And um, I, I think if you follow that strategy of, of sort of that salary range and, and those um, characteristics of a player, then, then that's how you can, uh, you can get a fourth line that really works well for you. Chris Gear, former NHL assistant general manager, joining us here on BK and Ferrario. You can now find his work over at the Daily Faceoff, where he breaks down the league's offseason in particular. Uh, Chris, I did want to ask you, you mentioned David Perron is one of the free agents that they have to deal with this offseason. And he's coming off of a deal that was, I mean, a bargain, honestly, for the Blues. Four years, and over those four years, he played in 251 games and had 221 points, and he was tremendous in the playoffs as well. When you're dealing with a contract negotiation like this with a player who has never signed a contract anywhere but in St. Louis under his own volition, what is this like? Like, How do these negotiations tend to go, and what do you think that he's probably going to be expecting this offseason? That's a really interesting one because, you know, you're right. He's got some loyalty to St. Louis. He's only ever signed there. Uh, and so there's got to be an assumption on the Blues part that that he wants to be there, and that's that's some leverage on their part. Uh, you know, his, his agent Alan Wallace isn't going to give anybody any any deals. Um, you know, it's it, he's 34 years old. It's if if it was a one year deal, it's a no brainer. You just you've got the cap space. You give him the one year deal. You figure it out. It, if he wants to go two or three or four years that's when it becomes difficult because at some point there's going to be a drop off in Perron's game. We haven't seen it yet. He's actually surprised people with, with how consistent he's able, uh, he, he's been over the last several years. Um, but at some point you have to figure it in a regression to his game. And so you can't, you can't extend term with, with the kind of money that he'd be due for say a one or a two year deal. Um, you know, if, if they extend some term to him, I don't, I don't see 
why the the number would be you know too far above where he is now frankly but um but if he's on a one or two year deal sure he i could see someone giving him you know seven million bucks or something just because of his production and and his playoff utility i mean he's obviously a beast in the playoffs so uh, it's, it's going to be a challenging one depending on the term Chris, final one from me, and this is just more because St. Louis is going to be talking about this until it actually happens. The Matthew Kachuk <laughs> saga, you mentioned Johnny Goudreau and the interesting offseason for Calgary. How realistic do you think it is that Matthew Kachuk could be traded this offseason? I think it all depends on, on Johnny Goudreau. Um, you know, Kachuk is an RFA, so Calgary controls his rights. So if they if they can't get anywhere with Goudreau and he's leaving, then, they, then they're going to keep Matthew Kachuk. If, uh, if they get something done with, with Johnny that they're happy with and, and also with Mangiapane, you know, it's possible that they decide to move on from Kachuk and, and get some good pieces back for him. So I think, um, I think we'll know that, you know, before, before the 13th, uh, how that's gone with Goudreau. Apparently they've had lots of discussion with Goudreau. So, uh, you know, I, I just think it depends on, on that situation. Yeah. He's Chris Gear, former NHL assistant GM. We always appreciate him joining us here on the show. You should follow him on Twitter as well, at Van Gear Man, Van, V-A-N-G-E-A-R-M-A-N on Twitter. Chris, thanks so much for the time, man. We appreciate it as always. Enjoy yourself up there, and hopefully we can send some of this sunshine your way. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks so much, guys. Take care. Thanks, Absolutely. Chris. Same to you. That's Chris Gear joining us here on 101 ESPN. He mentioned once again the possibility early on in that interview, Alex, of the Blues buying out Marco Scandella. I know like 10,000 foot view of this Blues offseason. People nationally will be talking about that. Well, yeah, because it opens up two and a half million dollars to give them more more ways to explore. And just in a vacuum, it makes sense. Like he's a guy that doesn't have a clear and obvious role for this team because you have Nico Mikola as your third pairing left-handed defenseman. You've got Callie Rosen as a depth defenseman, and you've got Scott Perunovic. And then you're trying to sign somebody to be that top pairing. Yeah, I was going to say, it only makes sense if you can either get Nick Luddybat for a reasonable cost or, or you, you can acquire somebody. Absolutely. In that scenario, it makes sense to do this. I just, I continue to wonder, is that a move that Doug Armstrong would actually make? Because he's, he's never done it. I just think there's a there's going to be a team that's got to get close to the salary cap floor that's going to have to take on some type of salary. And at that point, you look at it and say, okay, well, here's a veteran who's got two years left on his contract plays well when he's available and he's healthy, he could he could add something to a locker room that's full of younger players. Like, I'm thinking of a Buffalo Sabres team, and I don't know if he'd even agree to go back to Buffalo because he does have a modified no-trade clause, but before you go in, the only way I think you explore buying out is if you know that Perron's going to cost you too much, you got to sign a backup goaltender, you can't get a Chikrin or a Travis Sanheim, and Nick Letty wants $5.5 million, and there's no other route to go. But Doug Armstrong has always been in the mindset of rather than me pay a guy to go play somewhere else, I'll trade him to get an asset or he stays on my team and we get the best quality out of him. Last thing, uh, somebody on the text line asked the question that I was going to ask you from the 618. So should Blues fans be hoping that Calgary can keep Goudreau or let him walk? Which one helps them get Matthew Kachuk? I would say you got to pray that Calgary signs him to a massive deal because if they don't, they will throw everything at Matthew Kachuk. And I'm talking 10-year, $11 million to because you can't lose two 100-plus point scorers. So 
I think if you're a Blues fan, you need Calgary to re-sign Johnny Goudreau. So send Johnny some tweets and fruit baskets to tell him to stay in Calgary. <laughs> if you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, the free 101 ESPN app. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Great interview earlier today with David Panyota talking about the Blues offseason. And then, of course, if you missed anything with Chris Gear, that one is worth your time, in my opinion, as well. Coming up next, we'll hit the BK and Ferrario Rewind with a comparison for this Cardinals team that Tiener made earlier today. I'll tell you who that is next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. ton of great giveaways this month if you already have it be sure to check out the rewards section if you don't have it yet download it today get registered to win your chance to win a thousand dollars in cash a portable traeger grill a rolling yeti cooler or a signed ryan o'reilly jersey so much more all of it available right now with the 101 espn app maybe t t bone get an ethernet cord from it too maybe maybe who knows there's so much available to you over there the money already so be sure to sign up help us beat the risotto show and 1057 the point it's all part of app madness for alex ferrario and tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Huge thanks to all of you for listening today. It's great to have Tanner back in the studio with us. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 with Charlie Lindgren joining the show. Excuse me. We'll be back tomorrow at 1030. Charlie Lindgren will Chucky join the Sideburns. show for an extended edition of BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Chill. It's in an above ground pool in High Ridge and we bought the house with it. It's not like I installed an in ground uh, pool, but like I don't want her to be afraid to have of an outdoor kitchen here my, within the next couple of weeks. My biggest expense was I just bought great. an Ethernet cable. So uh, see where we're uh, living here. <laughs> You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.